0: How do you do? I am Alfred Hitchcock, and I would like to tell you about my latest motion picture, Marnie, which will be coming to this theater soon. Marnie is a very difficult picture to classify. It is not
1: psycho, nor do we have a horde of birds flapping about and pecking at people willy-nilly. We do have two very interesting human specimens, a man and a woman. One might call Marnie a sex mystery, that is, if one used such words, but it is more than that. Perhaps the best way to tell you about the picture is to show you a few scenes.
0: Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette. Yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. Over the course of this series, we have been diving into the filmmaking technique, the stories, and the legacies of Hitchcock's respective films that have brought forth insight for myself and the guests involved. In the course of this series, we have attempted to hit upon the machinations of Hitchcock's career and influence through as many of the films as possible and utilizing specific films to discuss certain matters. Months back... We began the discussion that shall be concluded on today's show, The Dark Side of Hitch. Over the course of the series, my affection for Hitchcock as a human and as a filmmaker has grown farther than I expected, but that has not stopped me from having a reckoning on his dark side. It is an eternal discussion that extends even beyond Hitchcock to a larger discussion of where art and life intersect and where can appreciation be found from each subjective view. There will be no definitive answer on this show, as I cannot claim to have the intelligence to give one. What can be discussed on this end is the way we respond to uncomfortable art, both with context and modern lenses. Today's film lands in the very definition of that notion. In 1964, Hitchcock released a film called Marnie. It is a film that continues to revive various appraisals and examinations over the course of time, and as society changes and evolves, so too does the impression that one gets from a film like Marnie. And today we will get into that discussion with a return guest whose college-educated mind will serve much better than anything my dropout ass could ever deliver. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to welcome back the host of the Superlatives Film Podcast and the curator of the Dairy Arts Center in Boulder, Jack Hanley.
1: Hello, Zach. Thank hey, you for having me.
0: First of all, let's get this out of the way. You are alive. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I am indeed, despite rumors
1: uh, <laughs> to that fact
0: I, I I wanted to tell you i 'm very happy that we 've been able to take the time to do this, um, obviously, with corona and everything else going on in the world. It has been very hard for anybody to make any definite plans. Things change at a constant rate, and I am very happy that you have always been able to take time to sit down and uh, have these discussions with me and i And I will tell you i've been very happy to be a part of your podcast Superlatives, which since uh, the, your last episode aired, you have really started kind of uh, digging into that um, project. Do you want to tell people a little bit about Superlative so they can check it out for themselves?
1: Absolutely. And it is a uh, newer podcast that uh, came out featuring myself and my uh, co-host Shay Westcott of the Dairy Arts Center, who uh, programs uh, the Friday Night Weird program there. And it is just our uh, kind of examination of cinephilia uh, centered more around the type of uh, films that don't necessarily get the appreciation or the viewing audience that we feel they deserve. So a lot of independent cult and art house fair and, uh, no, we've really enjoyed doing it. We launched in, in the wake of COVID with some of our, uh, quarantine survival series episodes of which you have been a, graciously been a part <laughs> and just try, just trying to highlight some of the uh the, the films that um, we hope people can explore and discover out there in an amazingly interesting and difficult landscape when you can't go to the theater anymore so we like to try to highlight those uh films that we're trying to highlight those films that possibly didn't have an appreciation at their time so we tend to focus on a uh, long forgotten and may possibly misunderstood classic um, something from the modern era and a recently released film that uh, you may not have heard about yet and so it's our wish that we can really try to educate and enlighten our uh, fellow cinephiles out there to discover new cinema
0: and that's a, it's a and it's a show that i feel has been very important not just to the overall landscape of where we find ourselves in the current state of cinema, but also it um, it managed to actually help this show in particular. And I'll explain why in a second. <laughs> but um, the uh, the the key thing that I, I love about superlatives is that you are really actively working to expose films that don't get um, a lot of talk around the circuits and stuff, whether it's through streaming or even through theatrical releases prior to covid like there's a lot of films on the selections there that if i had heard about them it was through the awards circuit only and i was getting very little insight into where to find them and one of them was les miserables which um 20 uh, 2019 film technically but i think it came out here a little bit late but it is a film that has uh it it was a it was a relevant film when I saw it after you recommend it but it's become even more relevant over the past month my Um, god right how precious
1: the film was that exactly (laughs) for this moment yeah and
0: it's it's a film that I do recommend people seek out I I I still haven't seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire but it's a film that uh, Les Rob is a film that uh if I if I was going to take a shot in the dark I'd say it's the one that I would have wanted foreign language film to dominate but That being said, I'm also, um, you know, having not seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which has been proclaimed as like the one that was supremely ignored, I I I will have to reevaluate once I see that movie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Um, you know, and again, what makes that fun too is that we also illustrated the the French film, um, Hate which um now is my god going on its um nearly uh, 30th anniversary and also couldn't speak more clearly to the moment we are in it's almost as if this film were made last week right? Um, so that's really been our mission right now is to try to just uh expose people in this landscape to brilliant cinema that is vital <laughs> and that matters that you may not have experienced
0: yeah and it's and i and i appreciate that you've had me on um the uh the the the, the big one that i did was i was able to talk about two films that one of them is my uh in my top five films of all time and the other one is a film that um I, it, it was the sunshine boys which is a film that I, I i re-watched it uh the other day and i i'm still amazed by how much heart there is in that movie it's, it, and, it's <laughs> and it's herbert ross who's a director that i don't find particularly amazing but there are things that he does in that film that are composition wise some of the best i've seen for anything adapted from neil simon's work so it's a because, and I think primarily because it's a much more reflective piece by Simon than uh, than other films or other scripts that he's written or plays that he's written. Um, oh, absolutely. So it's, And uh, you know,
1: I can say, too, that uh, not only for us, it is an absolute treat every time you come on our show. Uh, but I think for our listeners as well, it's uh, becoming a little favorite piece. Uh, we, we had said early on that when you're actually bringing up um long forgotten classic cinema there's no one i know in my um milieu of uh cinephiles out there that i could probably better turn to than you so we're just so appreciative every time you come on
0: yeah Uh, i've appreciated it too and especially because like the the goal of superlatives has been first and foremost to make sure that it's available for people and the part of the issue with classic cinemas is that not everything is available now like the things that we're discussing today on this show are obviously very accessible, but there are films obviously like to be or not to be, you can find it on the criterion channel. Um, And now I, I found out you can find it on HBO max as well. Um, But it's a film that's not, super available anymore beyond the criterion sect on when it comes to physical media. Um, And that's because that uh, the, the licensing for it has been tossed around 500 different ways. But, but one thing's for certain is, is that like there, there are ways to find them. And sooner or later, the, 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 the different companies will have to start pushing these things at Warner archive. I think is the, the biggest problem I have with them is that they don't stream a lot of their titles without having to pay an an exorbitant uh, rental price um, that's right and i think it's something that will have to be effectively changed now that hbo max is around they'll have to start getting to that um but we're not here to talk about warner archive um we're here to talk about a film. it's hbo
1: max we're here to discuss that
0: yeah, yeah exactly hbo max we're not talking about we're not talking about marnie today we're going to talk about hbo max and why you should watch the new looney tune show guys it's amazing No, um,
1: that has been a bright spot on the network.
0: It's 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 so great. They did it. They did it correct. It's wonderful. (laughs) Um, But we are here to talk about Marnie, um, a film by one Alfred Hitchcock, uh, the subject of this entire series. Um, Now, there's been a lot of preparation that has gone into the discussion of Marnie, not just over the course of the series, but even before I started the series. Because it is a spot in Hitchcock's career that forces one to look at not just the film itself, but its production history and what it pertains to the man himself. Um, We're going to as we're going through this film, we're going to be I imagine we're not going to have like a super downer time, but we are going to be a little bit more. Uh, I, I, I don't really think that the Hitchcock invitation is coming out today. I don't, uh, I do not. As far as I can tell, <laughs> yeah. I don't think a right? Sean Connery right? invitation is going to be coming out of this one. But um, although he says some stupid things in this movie, <laughs> um, it has,
1: it has some amazing reading material, which we'll discuss later as well.
0: Exactly. And um, there's, there's a couple of pieces that I've found on it and I'm sure you have your resources as well. And we can dive into it. Um, but Marnie above all else is a film that, out of any Hitchcock film, it's the one that either no one wants to talk about or everyone wants to talk about. There is no <laughs> middle ground with Marnie. Um, and in looking, if you look at your releases of Marnie, if you have them on Blu-ray, you'll notice there's no commentary for this film. The feature, the special features, are relegated to a an hour long featurette um, regarding the production of Marnie, the Marnie archives, which are like pre- press and promotional materials, and the trailer. Um, normally, for a film that begs discussion you'll have a commentary and it's strange that this one doesn't on any universal release and i think a lot of it has to do with the way marnie came about now we're going to talk about the plot Mm -hmm. of marnie but i do want to talk about the production and also um talk about the the elements of marnie's production that have not just not that weren't just a problem then but have come into even further light um uh, over the course of the past five six years um, so this project started as the development, it's a development – it's based on a novel by Winston Graham. Uh, the novel came out in 1961 uh, – or uh, the novel came out um, before 1961 with um, uh, Hitchcock. Uh, basically, Hitchcock had just finished Psycho, and he had received he, – he, ga- he got interest in this project and commissioned Joseph Stefano, the writer of Psycho, to start on a treatment. And they worked together a 161-page treatment. Now, Stefano, uh, writing for Psycho, he was attracted to this material immediately because of the element in Marnie, which is of psychoanalysis and psychology. And as Stefano is very uh, uh, proud of always pointing out, I was in analysis at the time. So (laughs) 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 He says that phrase so much in the the behind-the-scenes featurettes. It's it's scary. Um, Uh, Not just of this, but of Psycho as well. Psycho, it's written with it. Um, but so he basically Hitchcock was developing this project initially for Grace Kelly. Now we've talked about Grace Kelly Mm -hmm. over the course of several episodes and Grace Kelly at this time had already become princess grace uh, married to Prince Rainier in 1956. Um, And she, she was interested in this film. She really wanted to do it. And it sounded like Rainier was okay with it. And then there were problems in Monaco to begin with. Um, sure. But one of the things that's been drawn to there, there have been, there are numerous accounts as to why Kelly dropped out. There are resources you can find through secret history of Hollywood. You can find them through interviews with Pat Hitchcock. You can find them through books, whether they're um, uh, you know, whether they're biographies or just production notes on this film. But um, it seems like it's a combination of there are problems in Monaco and the fact that the last thing that the citizens of Monaco would want to see in their princess is her playing a sexually disturbed thief, which exactly. is the character of Marnie. So she's out of the project. Hitchcock is not particularly happy with this. In fact, he's rather livid, um, and he goes and makes the birds instead. And around this time, Hitchcock um, begins molding his version of a star once again with Tippy Hedren. Um, we talked a little bit about Hitchcock's behavior on the birds. Um, and it's from all indication from every single production document, regardless of what extent and who believes what exactly happened in each given instance. The bottom line is, is that Hitchcock was uh, a less than desirable human being, uh, when it came to the production of this film, especially in his, uh, treatment towards Tippy Hedren. um, Tippi Hedren was told that she would be the star of Marnie on the set of the birds. Um, so Hitchcock had started really reworking this to, uh, put Tippi Hedren in the role that Grace Kelly would have assumed. Um, and as has been documented with the production of this film, there's a halfway point where Hitchcock and Tippi Hedren come to blows. Um, Hitchcock basically isolated her, um, made her feel, uh, made her feel alone. Uh, and basically was um utilizing uh power moves that we have seen come to light in the recent years of other moguls um that are incredibly inappropriate and um unquestionably terrible um the to the extent of what happened, there are numerous accounts. The one that has come out recently is Tippy Hedren saying that uh he was um that hitchcock had basically um uh proposed sexual uh, proposed sexual um uh congress and she rejected it and as a result hitchcock isolated her on set made her feel like the odd one out
1: the- exactly and not only that but also just an obsession with yeah. uh with the harassment yes. uh, to the point that uh the quote i found that was most ominous is tippy referring to him in his legacy as that of an evil obsessionist Yes. Um, so it was in, you know, spent the rest of his time then after she rejected his advances, quite literally trying to ruin her career.
0: Yes. Now, there's there's a there. I will point out that there are numerous accounts of to what extent the obsession was within the sexual realm or what it was. Was it a power move? But I'm more inclined to listen to Tippi Hedren on this because she is the one who experienced it. I right. I am going to say that. You know, for how much of fondness and affection I have grown for Hitchcock over the years, there is this there is this bug here in the room that has to be addressed, which is that, like, for all that Hitchcock has accomplished, you do have to reckon with this simple fact about Hitchcock, which is this is the way he behaved on this set. This is the way he behaved on the set of The Birds. There are a lot of different um examinations into why this is. Um, there are numerous... um analyses uh, done by Hitch- uh, about Hitchcock in the regards of his issues with women but the bottom line with this behavior is is that regardless of to what extent it is or how bad it is it's still bad and it's not been denied by anybody I think what has been a consternation with different factions whether it's people who were close to Hitchcock or people who are objectively looking at tippy side or people who are looking in the middle is that things went wrong on this set there is no denying that um and the bottom line is is that when this film is released a lot of stuff comes out about the turbulence um uh, not to the extent that H- Hedren would later um uh write about in her memoir and also for the press but there was the turbulence has been discussed and it was known to the studios and by the time this film ends and it's released and is a critical and box office flop. Um Hitchcock is basically told by Universal no more star vehicles, no more of this obsessive nonsense you have to just make movies for us. And it, it brings into question the, you know, accountability of Hitchcock and to what extent we can examine this being close to 60 70 years removed i don't know what abilities we have what we have as a result though is marnie the film um it's a film that draws even more uncomfortable parallels than vertigo does um i <laughs> for sure. um and you know and again you know the the appreciation do you that you can have for hitchcock's work I think ultimately lies in your ability to separate art from artist, um, as with any artist period doesn't matter if they're good or bad sometimes you just have to separate that in order to watch the film both objectively and subjectively like there's a, I think there's a duality to it and I wanted to ask Jack knowing that knowing that the production of this film is as turbulent as it is not just with Hitchcock's behavior but also the content of it what what was your impression when you first saw this film and also had learned about the production of this film initially?
1: Absolutely. And that, that's, that's divergent, right, in, in and of itself. I absolutely appreciate Marnie as a film. I think there are some real moments of brilliance here. Um, in terms of how all of us as critics have to reconcile um, cultural reassessment, right, of great art, sometimes um, extraordinary art by very problematic people— that is the thing. Um, as much as we wish it were otherwise, uh, you and I both know texts, the arts, doesn't change. Our modern lens and understanding of our critical deconstruction of it does, right, in our modern lens. So being in this modern sense in this post me too movement um, – I still think it is very important though that we examine it and that we use it as a tool to not only look at what was problematic about the making of the film, what may have been problematic about Hitchcock himself as an auteur, but also just about its time period in the 1960s right yeah. of it being this uh, self unaware at the time <laughs> expo- you know right? expose of misogyny and patriarchal power struggles um, that at times almost seems like comically bad. Um, so yeah, I, I just but I really find that fascinating because on on one level, how how do we look at this in in the sense of a film, right? And think about it too, just how weird of a film it was, you know, even to be pitched at its time. Is this kind of just like a lurid lurid sexual tabloid film? Is it a attempt to be a dime story psychological thriller? Um, was it pitched as a romance in a weird way? On some level, it was. Um, I'm and so it's so firmly trapped in the idea of male patriarchy from the 1960s, that um, it, of course, can never be separated. I mean, if you look at the actual film poster itself, the first one released, it has um, the couple, as it were, on on the poster, and it has Tippi Hedren um, saying in quotes, I am just some kind of wild animal you've trapped. And Sean Connery's quote as a response is, that's right, Marnie, I've caught you, and by heaven, I'm going to keep you. Yeah so and. we we can right, so we can kind of you know we can view it in that lens immediately um, i mean there's uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought on that one um, <laughs> no, that's good, <laughs> but yeah, we can just cut that and yeah. uh, keep rolling i mean the the ultimate the ultimate way to look at this film is um, and I hope we get to explore its filmic merits and demerits on one level, but I think ultimately, but we can be okay as mature critics and mature thinking intellectuals out there in the world is the understanding and embracing that, um, our modern lens and our modern audience, uh, will not allow us, our cultural zeitgeist will not allow us to perhaps love or view the film in the same way that hitch did or wanted us to. Right. And we can be okay with that. And I kind of, uh, I kind of take uh, joy in seeing some of the modern cultural reassessment by some um, strong uh, female and feminist critics who are just trying to look at a way to see this as an opportunity to reevaluate the dichotomy of true hero and villain of um, trying to flip the switch on the great auteur in our modern context to point out um, of Marnie as our true protagonist and not the supposed white knight well-intentioned You know, rapist protagonist that Sean Connery plays in there, right? It's it's almost, Zach, kind of like in the way that you've heard it argued with the film election. Um, It's kind of at what point, where you're at in life, whether you view Tracy Flick as the hero or the villain. And I think that many people (laughs) have enjoyed that film and come to terms with the fact that um, at various times in their life, they've actually flipped on their opinion on that. And I think we can try to do the same thing here with this film. And I think it's important that we do, that the film is examined. Um, we discuss it and we bring these elements to light so that we can appreciate um, uh, the, the film in that way.
0: Right. And and to, and to clarify what we were talking about within the production um, from the start of this show, I I set out to not specifically focus on Hitchcock, the man and more Hitchcock, the filmmaker. But with this, I wanted to basically address um, Tippy Hedren's experience on this um, and also to point out that. Hitchcock is um, as discussed in a lot of things like there's a lot of different points of his psyche that draw him to this point. Um, It doesn't excuse the behavior, but it is interesting to look at, you know, how this film and that production tidbit coincide with each other. Um, because I think it's it, in a certain sense, it says a lot about Hitch the Man. But this is a podcast that is more dedicated to t- talking about the films and the techniques that he's utilizing. Um, right. Unfortunately, because they are as intertwined as they are, you know, the discussion's not going to be um, glossed over. Um, I I will point out a quote that hit uh, that Tippy Hedren had to say before we get into this. I do want to bring this up because I think it is important to understanding why she continues to praise the film and its per, and her performance in it she says that th- she's said that this is her favorite work that she did as an actress Now, Tippi hedren had explained um because there is a there is a um uh a contrasting element to Tippi hedren and how she addresses hitchcock and I think it th- it's explained in this quote He ruined my career, but he didn't ruin my life. That time of my life was over. I still admire the man for who he was. I have been able to separate the two. The man who was the artist, I mean, what he gave to the motion picture industry can never be taken away from him, and I certainly wouldn't want to try. But on the other hand, there is that dark side that was really awful. So, I think Tippi Hedren has more or less, in spite of what she endured under Hitchcock, um, was in her own way able to reconcile it and find a silver lining of sorts um and it's hard for us to i think hear things like that today um but i think it's important that we start learning about how we view that art from the modern lens as you were discussing and how we dissect it regardless of Again, keep in mind, like I'm not a fan of this movie in terms of wanting to rewatch it. <laughs> it's not the, it's not an entirely <laughs> rewatchable film to say the least for me. But, but it is a film that, especially as I rewatched it last night, Marnie is a film that I think has a lot of layers to it, and it's, I think it's a testament to not so much Hitchcock's ability, but the ability of his team, and it's also a prime example about what happens when you take those things away because we should point out that Marnie is one of the last films to feature most of the collaborators that made his career so successful in the 50s and early 60s. I'll go through the credits right now. Directed by You Know Who, um, screenplay by J. Presson uh, Allen, um, and we'll talk about her in a second, uh, based on the novel by Marnie, starring Tippi Hedren, Sean Connery, Diane Baker, and Martin Gable. Music by Bernard Herrmann. Cinematography by Robert Burks. Edited by George Tomasini. Uh, with costumes by Edith Head. The, basically, the big guns are in this movie. After this film, he severs his relationship with Bernard Herrmann over the score for Torn Curtain. Um, Thomasini, um, if I recall correctly, yep, he had died the same year that That's Marty right. was That's released. Right. Um, and this is the last time that he would work with Robert with Burks. Burke. Um, yep. his cinematographer who he worked with on twelve films. So this is not even just a consternation in Hitchcock's career because of his personal life. This is also a con- this is also the end point for his professional life in terms of the the magic touch that uh, was brought to create some of the classic Hitchcock films.
1: You know, and it almost uh, marks not only just you know literally but also figuratively just this um freedom of both where the film industry was going right around that time, right? It's a precursor right to the end of the studio system and the age of uh, new Hollywood and really just kind of marks. I think the end of kind of like this templated uh, filmic structuralism that, that Hitchcock can sometimes often just be viewed within the lens of as you well know, especially from our deconstruction of frenzy, I myself, and it's not as popular, I understand that with all the <laughs> Hitchcock fans, but um, I have a real predilection for uh, the the films that tend to be somewhat referred to as the least Hitchcockian of the Hitchcock canon, <laughs> right? You know, kind of films that kind of just take this departure because I really see this, this beautiful desire to kind of shed some of that structuralism and really embrace elements of the new Hollywood system. I mean, the fact that a lot of this work and this, this idea to break from it comes from his um, post-Truffoe interviews and um, the idea that um, the French at that point have started to really instill within him his importance and recognition within the industry, even if American the American systems and critical systems often ignored it. Um, it was the French that said, no, you, you were important and you were a launching point for the French new wave and how we viewed cinema. And so I think he was eager to just to be able to you know venture into that world so all of these later films i kind of just find um weirdly beautiful too in the way that you can see him trying to synthesize some of his early formalism and structuralism that kind of made him hitchcock right but also start this experimentation into being loose into trying to to deviate a bit on it i mean in some ways um this film marnie to me to me and frenzy later on feel like Hitchcock most out of control in in a good way yeah right Um, from from some of his early kind of like obsessions with how he chose to film and we'll get into that later and also um, hopefully kind of end up talking about um, Kaleidoscope the film that could have been yeah which uh, we mentioned that we might revisit toward the end here
0: yeah exactly and um, I I will I will as we go through the plot I will kind of break into the tidbits of information for the production because as we um, as we as we talk about it and we and we draw the allegory, I think I, I'm not going to overanalyze um, because I think that that can be a dangerous territory as well. But I uh, but I will point into how it 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 feels like in the process. The way I can describe both the production and the story of Marnie is that Hitchcock is working with a story that's almost trying to. It seems like he's trying to examine his own possessiveness, and then the process became possessive to the nth degree, and it unraveled him. Because Mm. this film has been uh, designated as a film that kind of unraveled him in an unhealthy way, Um, not to mention the other lives that he unraveled, whether it was Tippy Hedren or... You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of patience that Alma Revel had to put up with in, um in the production of this film. And um, there's in the secret history of Hollywood, the, uh, the the host really paints a picture of what Hitchcock's psyche is going into Marnie and what it is coming out of it and also the other people around him. Um, and it shows a, an enormous amount of patience on Alma Revel's level that I <laughs> uh, that you cannot deny. Um, and again, when it when we talk about marnie and its uh and, and all of its workings there are several sides t- uh, and several angles to this story that i i found it very hard to come up with any definitive answer apart from the bottom line is is that it unraveled hitchcock and it ruined tippy hedren's career because hitchcock made that so um, <laughs> i and, think it's marvelously and, well put yeah so like so within that we'll stop um you know, I think we're gonna halt a little bit on really beating that stick again because I think that it's gonna it'll get a little old. We're gonna jump into the product. We're gonna jump into the plot of this film because um, I think I think the first thing somebody should realize about Marnie is is that as a hitch as a Hitchcock film, as you already pointed out, he's already trying to deviate from stuff there's also a element of this where it feels like it's an attempt to do something that he would do in the forties with Ingrid Bergman, but, uh, deviate even further because the suspense and the thrills of this film are so internal that Hmm. there's no real set piece in this movie. Like there in a Hitchcock movie. There isn't a huge set piece apart from maybe the hunt. And I, and I even take issue with that being a huge set piece, um, but we'll we'll jump into the plot. Um, we open up on uh, uh, which I think is interesting for the time is that the the title card cuts immediately into uh, Marnie walking um, or a, a, a dark haired lady walking down a train platform, and then it cuts to um, a, a man named Sidney Strutt basically explaining. Um, <laughs> how he was robbed of $10,000 from his company um that that um and then he goes into why this woman what, what this woman looked like and <laughs> and
1: the circumstances by which he hired her yeah exactly. <laughs> which is an, which, it's it, a wonderful his sec- scene
0: his secretary is is eager to point out like well she had no references don't you remember <laughs> and so it's pointing out Sydney's gullibility um and in, in in falling for her charm Um, And in this same scene, we meet uh, one Mark Rutland played by Sean Connery. (laughs) (laughs) And it's important to talk about Sean Connery here in this movie, not just because of the role he's playing, but because of the role he's played most of his career.
1: (laughs) Exactly. uh, It had just uh, come off two years earlier, his foray into such a role.
0: Yeah. Now, full disclosure, I'm not a Sean Connery hater. I understand why Sean Connery peeves people off. And I get it. I do appreciate his performing ability in spite of the fact that he has terrible things to say out loud. Um, he um, he had been James Bond at this point. Dr. No had come out. It was a hit. And Hitchcock was actually tangentially connected to James Bond because they wanted him to do it with Cary Grant. And Hitchcock said no. And Cary Grant said no. And so that's kind of – it's not the one thing they were relying on. But, like, the Bond movies evolved eventually into what we got with um, Terrence Young directing Sean Connery and Dr. No. And, obviously, Sean Connery's performance of James Bond is a definitive one. It's one that carried on a form and – characterization that wouldn't really be broken I would I I think until Daniel Craig came around that's right um, absolutely you know you could argue that Timothy Dalton kind of takes it to a different degree but there are still elements of Connery in Timothy Dalton's portrayal and it's just because of the way it's written Um and um, and I never I haven't really seen a Roger Moore Bond movie, so I can't.
1: <laughs> I, oh, I, count yourself fortunate, my friend. I see. That's the thing. <laughs> also you know, unpopular opinion, but I, uh... <laughs> I have
0: I, I, I know people who are fond of Roger Moore. My 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 best recollection of Roger Moore is when he plays James Bond um, in uh, uh, Cannonball Run, and <laughs> and uh, it and it's it's a fun role for him. Um, but regardless, so Sean Connery plays Mark Rutland, a wealthy widower who owns a publishing company in Philadelphia, um, and he basically is reminded that he saw this woman that is stolen from Sydney. And as we cut away and reveal the woman um, changing her identity again, we see that she uh, is no longer a dark-haired beauty. She is now a blonde bombshell named Tippy Hedren, or Marnie, or. Margaret Edgar
1: (laughs) or (laughs) one of many other uh, uh, forged Social Security documents.
0: I haven't seen this many names since I can't know when because it's it's she's she's been doing this hustle for so long. Um, Basically, she assumes identities, lays herself into a job and then steals money from those safes. And she takes the money to, um, amongst other things, to uh, uh, fund her horse riding habit. Um, where she an attempt to
1: earn the love of her mother
0: yes Bernice played by Louise Latham in a performance that I think Louise Latham is amazing in this movie as is Tippy, she Hedren. is great
1: that's the thing and, like... and, and yes Tippy, can we just also just acknowledge at the top yeah. um, how critically slammed she was at the time um, for her perceived lack of ability in acting, and I think she is absolutely incredible in the performance.
0: Yeah, I th- I think that any criticism of her performance of the time is complete horseshit, because the, um, and, and it's not for me to get too abrasive with this, but I think that Tippi Hedren does the best job in the movie because she is asked so much of her, and knowing what we know of the production, where at, at the last third of it, Hitchcock and her were only speaking through third party, uh, the fact that she gives the performance that she gives is astounding. Um, and to the fact it it shows her ability. This is a woman who'd only had one other film under her belt, which is the birds. So for her to jump from the birds to this is incredible. Absolutely. And it, and it is a testament to Hitchcock's ability to dis, there were discussions about the character prior to um, the isolation that she would later feel under him. The, they were discussing this character and breaking it down. So Hitchcock had like had these discussions with her and the screenwriter, Jay Preston Allen in advance to really dig deep into the character and what she was feeling. So there's a lot of things that she already knew going in. So basically we learn, we learn slight evidence that, you know, obviously Marnie and her mother have their issues. Um, She does not feel that she is loved by her mother. We get flashes of Marnie's, trauma trigger from her PTSD and it comes in the form of the color red. We don't know at this point why the color red affects Marnie. We just know it affects her and it sends her into, a, into what we now would refer to as a, as a bit of a PTSD kind of triggering event in a flashback.
1: Um, right, from repressed memory syndrome, which at that time was, yeah. right, had, they had just started venturing into even trying to understand that phenomenon.
0: Yes, and this is a phenomenon that has evolved over the years in terminology, um, battle fati- shell shock, battle fatigue, and then finally PTSD, um, which, I mean, obviously more attributed to soldiers initially, but we have learned over the years that trauma is not relegated solely to a battlefield. It is also uh, inherent within domestic situations, um, life-changing events. Um, and also violent events on a local scale that are not on a battlefield. Um, Absolutely. And um, so we learn in this scene that Bernice is rather cold, or at the very least, she is she is very definitive on her pride of Marnie is is that she doesn't need a man. And this this brings up a an a, an important element of uh, of marnie and how we view it today is is that it, from a lens of a modern view the conversation that they're having on its nose uh, on its surface seems like it's progressive about like you don't need a man to be as successful as you are but the caveat that's being presented is that marnie is a thief and is breaking the law so there's a of the time reading of this film that suggests that they're making Marnie look terrible. When you watch it from the modern lens, it's kind of weird. It's like, yeah, she doesn't need a man.
1: <laughs> right, right. Well, and there and there's so many small instances of that. Because going back to um, you know, spoilering a bit, um, in that first sequence, whenever um her first boss that she steals from is describing the scenario upon how he hired her and her ca- physical characteristics and lack of references. Um, there is this amazing camera movement between his secretary, who is fully aware of the uh, patriarchal system and nineteen sixties boys club misogyny yeah. that allowed him to view her and hire her, and now not know much about her purely at, through objectification and then it simultaneously cuts back between the detectives who are laughing and giggling at his descriptions right when the best you can give of a description of your employee is her dress size and having good teeth right that yeah. tells you everything and um, so it, it was It was also kind of markedly progressive there in pointing out um, very self-aware that it is a misogynistic system that is in play
0: yeah and 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 you know there's I mean, as we've talked about Hitchcock's films and their portrayals of women you know there are there are yes modern day problems with portrayals of his women in various different elements of his films and his filmography, but one thing you can say about Marnie's is, is that and you could say this about Hitchcock in general is is that he never shied away from touching those subjects and not he, at all and he never he never uh, i mean like it seems like even as he would create the the of the time domestic ending or solution to an issue it, it always felt like he was never even fully comfortable with those decisions um like there's something about it that always feels like the studio interfered or told him you can't do this this and this which makes the ending of this film interesting um it, even beyond like the initial issues i had with it when i first saw it years ago um it actually it, the third viewing I've had of this film, which was last night, really, um, really gave me pause. And we'll talk about it when we get to that point. But
1: right, right, But even at that moment, if I just may interject for a second, I mean, even look at the, the, the famous, you know, Hitch has his uh, cameo in every single film, of course. And this is the first one where he is likewise completely self-aware of yeah. using his own cameo to also draw a point. That his character and that this film and that the entire um, idea at play within the narrative structure will be how a woman can operate, deviate from, escape, conquer, overcome uh, the parameters of the male gaze. I mean, his cameo is a wink at the camera to what's happening there, right? From that brilliant opening sequence, which is almost like a... A pop art, nineteen sixties stylism of her walking on that platform, still without agency, without a face, going down that hallway, and how Hitch comes out of the door and acknowledges his own participation in that gaze um, yeah. is, is very telling too, right? It, you're right; he owns it from the onset.
0: Yes, and 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 now, as we as we discussed at the top of the show about you know his behavior, and then seeing this cameo, it does it does lend credence to the notion that his obsession with this idea and the practice of his obsession over female stars that he molded and created has twisted itself into it has intertwined itself so much that it, it seems like it's now become a different it, it it's almost, it's almost like his self-awareness isn't in- he is, is taken to the nth degree where it it is it looks troubling, but when you watch it for just the film and not even just the and not the production, withstanding, standing. When you're watching it in the film, yes, he is he is complicit with the other men, and therefore it is it is a wink and a nod that I think only time has allowed us to realize. Because I don't think I I have a hard time feeling that an audience of the era was smart enough to understand where that cameo is brilliant. Um, And now as we move along, though, um, you know, Marnie picks up now yet another job. Um, This time she finds herself at Mark Rutland's company and uh, she gets interviewed by um, the person running Mark Rutland's offices (coughs) with Sean Connery as Mark Rutland in the background um just basically telling his boss or, or telling his uh employee no 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 hire her hire her yep yeah oh god i did do a sean connery impression god damn it with that um, classic
1: connery nod right yeah the...
0: exactly yes yeah, sh- i'm i'm going to come in once in a while um <laughs> but um the uh uh so th- she's hired based on one reference or one one piece on her resume and gives this story about Learning accounting from her husband, her husband dies, and she needs a way to be motivated to work and um and she starts the job she gets uh shown around by one of the other secretaries and as she's starting at her work, some red ink drops on her dress, which is pure white, and she loses it in the office, goes to clean it up, and she tries to downplay the importance of the event that has just occurred. <laughs> Which right. I think if the audience at the time is looking at Tippy Hedren as not grasping the material, I think they're looking at the freak out moments that she <laughs> has. I don't think that they're looking at her performance. They're looking at the 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 outward things and not the the um uh the internalized things. Um and so when you see that externalization of panic and PTSD of the at the time it probably did seem ridiculous. When we watch it today, I don't feel that at all. I don't feel that her reaction is ridiculous. It's yeah, no, I think that's actually a marvelous
1: point, again, of, of how we view that within its, within its construct. Um, you know. And, and the only other film that I think – I'm just going to deviate for a second – that really also tried to play with these same ideas of repressed um, childhood trauma, of, of, of sexual repression in light of PTSD – Um, of how the female's point of view relates to their attempt to overcome that within the purview of the male gaze would be Polanski's repulsion. Um, And in that sense, and that is a film I will contend, I still feel is the far better film. However, um, his is done through a much greater internalization and subtlety through the character, whereas how Hitchcock is allowing it to be expressed publicly and reacted upon more by... Um, the milieu and the society of the workplace and in society that she's in um, can make it both at the same time seem outrageous and exaggerated but as you put I think correctly um, probably true to form in that sense so yeah I I do I do think you're dead on it right
0: there. I agree and Repulsion is a film like and, and I'm not the most avid Polanski watcher not necessarily because of his own his own demons speaking um, of or, tro-
1: of problematic directors speak,
0: speaking of problematic yeah but but <laughs> polanski's films i have watched at least once i think roseberry's baby is the one i've watched the most but repulsion is a one that yes can definitely be drawn to this as like the more subtle uh um uh cousin to uh barney <laughs> um in that certain respect and you're right there's but but the externalization here falls in line with hitchcock's ability to be a showman Yes. And I think that I think it's important for it to do this because we've talked about uh, we, I've talked about with other people about the way sometimes audacious things work better for an audience than they do when they're subtle. And the biggest example within the last couple of years has been Joker, because I'm not the biggest fan of Joker. Um, but regardless, that film works on broad strokes. Joker works on broad strokes the way Marnie does. And as a result. Within, within the world we live in today, something like Joker gets a better response. When Marty's working with the Broad Strokes, it seemed as comical, but it's also coming from a period where the the, the cultural discussion hasn't devolved to the point of let's talk about this issue and this issue with women in particular, which I'm not going to claim to be an expert on female psychology or you know female issues because I'm, I'm, I'm a dumb man still learning. However, um, I will say that there's There's something to this film, and the way it ultimately uh addresses the um the inner workings of what that kind of trauma does to somebody down the line, and to express it out the way Hedron does, I think is. Important.
1: no you 're right about um, the spectacle, and, and also just about the fact that as a as a modern viewer in in hindsight now, we can also see how how that would have played to audiences in one thousand nine hundred and sixty four more as a reaffirmation of like, like quote uh, of feminine hystericalism end quote yeah. at the time, right, so it kind of would reaffirm already. What some of the patriarchal systems were imposing about this idea of of, of women in general, um, so yeah, I think that's that's absolutely fascinating how that I don't think that was hitchcock's I- intent. I do think he was dealing as you said as he always does, with spectacle to try to illustrate this strong externalism of this issue and I agree with you what you said earlier, i don 't know that audiences of nineteen sixty four caught that I, I, at the time.
0: No. Yeah. And 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 again, with Hitchcock, you know, obviously the, the noted his noted issues with women withstanding, I always feel like when he's addressing societal norms, he questions them. He'll adhere to them, but he
1: questions them at the same time. So he And not... delights in watching the anxiety of the audience respond to them.
0: Yes, exactly. And he walks those lines finely in most of his films, not even just Marnie, like every, every nearly every film he does walks those lines delicately. Um, for the time. It's, it's why you can still watch his films and look at them in a modern context as at times progressive and even at times regressive at the same time because he's having to do a balancing act each time. He's not it's not like he's a it's not like he was either interested or even uh, able to make sincere and utter statements about the state of the world. But he is able to address them in his own way. Um, but as we go along in this film, um, the boss says, hey, um, Mr. Rutland overheard that you like to work overtime. Would you like to work Saturday? So she comes in on Saturday and comes into Sean Connery's office. And uh, as Mark Rutland, as I will keep saying, and Rutland <laughs> uh, is starting to do some work and then just proceeds to talk about animal psychology. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which is... I would like I would like to point out the cameo, the the shockingly, unintentionally hilarious cameo of the uh, framed portrait of the jungle cat on, on Sean Connery's desk in yeah. this scene, which seemed as if the cat had somehow, like, posed for a portrait at a Sears in 1987. Yeah. It's, it's a, just absolutely beautiful moment in the film. I got rejected
0: as the MGM logo, so this is my work now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, doing a pose. Um, it's it, This is the... One of the frustrating things about COVID-19 is that Jack can't see my tiger pose right now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, I'm imagining it with every fiber of my. Yeah, be. Yeah, exactly.
0: It's, it's, it's literally no different than Bugs Bunny wearing a dress. Anyway, we're, um, I guess there was some humor to be had in this discussion after all. Um, we were, but yeah, that, that, that portrait is obscenely obvious. Uh, and the scene in The Office is, I think it's a tour de force of production. And yes, it's yes. Also, the mo one of the more aged things in terms of the way it plays out. However, it still works. So he goes into the discussion of predators in the animal world, and lady predators in particular, and <laughs> the, the the obsession with animal psychology and uh, uh, behavior in this is is part of Jay Press and Allen's version of the script. Now, Jay Press and Allen yes. is um, she's she was a she was a playwright that was tapped by Hitch after both Stefano and writer of the birds, Evan Hunter were dropped from this script. And we will talk about why Evan Hunter was dropped from the script in a little bit, but Jay Preston Allen's additions to the psychology of Mark Rutland is her own fascination with animal psychology. And, uh, I think it actually works as a thematic through line. It's a little rough, but I don't find it, um, to be of complete uselessness. Um, it, I think it, I, I think if anything, it gives, it gives the most on the nose discussion of what Mark Rutland is trying to do as he goes
1: forward in this story.
0: It doesn't always work, but I think it's, it, there are worse ways to
1: draw illusions. I think. Of course. And, and as I mentioned too, even unintentionally works for the modern era deliciously yeah. uh, to point out exactly this idea of, of in some ways, the the structure and format of, the character who has to save the woman, cure her from all her ailments, the domination the the, the subduing and taming of, of women um, as a purview of of the male responsibility um, is just showcased there in such a way that i haven 't seen uh, as recently as maybe like uh, von trier 's melancholia mm-hmm. um, with yeah. the character of Kiefer Sutherland as well right This is this idea that uh, man has an innate duty to subdue things wild. Tame yeah. them, put it, them under control, for them to truly realize their potentiality, right? Would, so yeah, it, I, th- I think it, I think it works. It works even better for us.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think I, yeah, I do think that actually it, it, it works better, e- e- regardless of how on the nose it is. It's not um, it's not a disservice to the film, and we learn that an additional trigger of Marnie is storms in this scene because the most insane storm ever happens. <laughs> And localized. Scene. It is, like—and <laughs> and this is the thing. I'm not, like—full disclosure, when, I, when I'm making these extreme statements, it's not because I'm, like, making fun of it or I'm better than the movie. It's just that the production value of this storm is incredible and at the same time audacious, much like the movie itself. And Absolutely. It, it, he, he even says, like, don't worry, the building is grounded. And— <laughs> Of course, that doesn't mean that the, they're safe from the windows because a tree comes through that fucking window. Boom! The moment, and it's and it obviously it scares her into the corner, and that's when Connery makes his, you know, I'm gonna call it his Bond move because it feels like a Bond move, um, which is is very weird, but it's like it's that's a that's a that's a moment that is definitely of its time where. A, a romance or a love of any kind, regardless of where this love goes is, uh, very, very expedient. Um, as they, you know, they get to know each other a little bit more. He learns that she likes horses. So they go to the racetrack. She, um, they meet, they, they have, uh, a time at the racetrack where she is also, uh, identified (laughs) by another person that she had swindled. Um, but she denies it flatly. And, uh, Sean Connery uh tells him to go fuck himself essentially without using that phraseology <laughs> and uh, and they go to see uh one of her favorite horses um, at the paddock and she sees the horse's uh garb or his saddle is red, and she goes into another um attack
1: and the, the reoccurring motif and if I just make quickly just before we depart from that amazing um, office sequence there. Two items that just jumped to mind. Exactly what you said with the production value that I think uh, gets underplayed and under service sometimes whenever um, we look at this critically. That is very much Hitchcock in that scene, and even in spots all throughout this film, really flexing his old expressionism, his German expressionist roots there um, in the striking and startling almost, um, you know, they're, they're literally at times the inclusion of. Fake and painted set pieces, yeah. which a lot of critics at the time were pointing out just illustrated like a silliness or almost a campiness that they couldn't understand without recognizing that this is Hitchcock flexing his old muscle of where he cut his teeth and what that sort of thing meant. As we, as we discussed, um, he he launches into this film with a very externalized Component of her madness, of her trauma. But at the same time, the German expressionalism and its stylism in set design allows a simultaneous internalism through symbolic uh, um, yep. archetypes. So so I think that that gets kind of undersold. People don't, um, I think a lot of people at the time really missed and misjudged that. Um, the second thing I just want to say very quickly is, yes, that that Bond move, you hit it, to, you know, complete nail on the head, which goes from like um, assertiveness to protector, to the comforter and in the same move it's a way to cop a feel and move on to a sexual advance. And um the, the 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 ease of which Connery does that is is pure early Bond, but also illustrates exactly the point you made about where we've come within the series with Craig. It immediately made me think of a Bond move from 1964 and then flashed forward to how that exact uh, another comforting scene of a female protagonist in trauma is done with the reboot of Casino Royale in which you have just Daniel Craig truly offering care and comfort without trying to make the move something that would have never have been done at that time so yeah, I, that I just scene, wanted to that, that scene throw you shower, a bone there yeah. that you're dead on in that
0: yeah that scene in the shower in Casino Royale is, is it's, it's 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 such a weirdly mature B- scene in a bond movie <laughs> like, right it's it a blue- truly
1: attempts to do, create some revisionism with this character in yeah, a Yeah exactly
0: and 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 I will say uh, to to add on to your point about the expressionism in this film yes this is obviously hitch drawing back to the things that inspired him initially when in the british gains uh, Br- british and gainsborough period where he has influences like lang and Paul Lenny, really and murnau really showing him a way to convey the character without using any dialogue. And the additional factor of this is that this film is a colorist dream. This is – if mm-hmm. if Jack Cardiff shot this film <laughs> instead of Robert Burks, I would have believed you immediately because it looks like a Cardiff movie to a certain extent. Right. Oh, my um, God. So true. Now, now Burks is a brilliant cinematographer in his own right with color, but Cardiff painted pictures – literal pictures with paint he the whether it's black narcissus or the red shoe cardiff was cardiff was one of those guys that could paint this kind of picture and i think burks comes the closest to painting a cardiff picture than any other cinematographer when it comes to the imagery in this film not just with the flashes of red not just with the work with the lighting but the way that the film feels like a painting even to so the true. point of the backdrops and the matte paintings that Robert Boyle has his hands on, really do evoke this idea of like Marnie doesn't really exist in the real world, and maybe that's the justification they make for certain decisions. But uh, but it does feel like a painting. The, the the opening credits of this movie even start as like the turning of a page of a novel, right? So it's, exactly, absolutely. So it's, it's, so it's almost like he doesn't want you to think this is the real world, and yet. <laughs> We're going to talk about the real world. Um, uh, <laughs> so he, uh, she, they kind of develop a fling, but obviously Marnie's using it to her advantage uh, to gain more trust so that she can pull off her heist, which my favorite thing in Marnie is the heist scene.
1: Let's talk about that fucking amazing scene.
0: This scene has zero sound in it for the most part. Like I think it, like maybe 2% is sound.
1: Yes, right. There is no maybe the closing of the vault door is about the only thing you almost think for a moment that he's doing like, you know, that Godard moment of silence. Like It is just deathly quiet.
0: Yeah, it is it, the closest that I've seen to that utter silence. It, you said you said you pointed it out Godard, in Band of Outsiders when they just shut the sound off. Um, Absolutely. And that and now this is taken to that nth degree with an entire scene. But more importantly, I think it also draws back to, again, him flexing his silent film muscles, which he always does in his films. And in this particular one, I think it comes closer than most to what he's always wanted to do because he is basically conveying all the suspense in that silence, usually in suspense scenes that he's done with this he's got like smaller bits of sound that still permeate the image here. He shuts everything off. And I think that's uh, kind of a testament to the power that he had gained through psycho and the birds where he was able to make these choices. And as you notice after Marnie, a lot of stuff is taken away from him in terms of control and um, not just from him as a person, but also as a filmmaker because of the way the studio reacted to Marnie. And, this scene plays out much like a film like the lodger would have or much like a film uh, from his silent period that would that would put people on edge and give them that tension it's not creepy the way they would uh would have been in the british Gambo period but it is very unsettling in the sense of how much how how much our our allegiance is on marnie and wanting her to get away with this and so any any indication, whether it's a, a cleaning woman who doesn't hear well or another person, a janitor walking down the hall as she's leaving, like we're on edge. The only oh my time God, that is... wide
1: shot, how that's introduced, I, I was astonished again, it got, just like you recently, we rewatched this again for, I believe, probably the third time. And, and and still struck. It is so fresh. It is so vibrant. It is so vital. It's 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 an amazing sequence. Yeah. It's worth it to watch this film alone for simply that sequence.
0: Yeah, it, it's and that's the thing. Like I I you know as I've talked about how I don't particularly love Marnie, I would watch that scene again in terms of if I wanted to do something of that nature. This is a uh, an exacting way of how to do it. And like Peter Bogdanovich talks about this scene and how brilliant it is as well. You know and. You know, it's not hard to get Peter Bogdanovich to talk about things, but you
1: know, <laughs> never at all. I
0: love, I, I, you know, it's funny. I'm not, I, I, I need to do more work on Bogdanovich as a filmmaker because I mainly love him as a historian, but um, <laughs> that's my exposure. So I've, right. I've watched Paper Moon and Last Picture Show and What's Up Doc? And that's about where I stopped. And like, and I need to fix that. <laughs> but anyway, we're not talking about Bogdanovich and his ascots. Um, We're, uh, we're, so we, she gets away with the crime. <laughs> Um, and the, from the, from the end of that high scene, oh, which by the way, the silence is broken when the janitor goes like, you in a rush? <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. And, or well, and, guy, and, and then, then and, and, the shoe drop, yeah, right? Yeah, and the lady deafening just, like, shoe drop.
0: Yeah. And she's just like, I've got, I got to get home. <laughs> like <laughs> there's that shoe. Oh, that shoe drop is tense as shit too. Like, holy shit. Like that. Again, this whole scene, you need to watch. If there's a way, I, I'll, if I can find a link to the just the clip itself, I will post it on the website. Um, but um, So we cut immediately back to her riding her horse, indicating that she's gotten away with it and gotten all she wants. Um, and uh, Mark tracks her to the stable, where she keeps her horse, uh, Forio, and <laughs> gets her in the car, takes her on a little journey, in which he reveals he's blackmailing her into marriage. <laughs> <laughs> and uh we also learn at this time we've also learned about uh, Mark's sis, former sister-in-law Lil played by Diane Baker who's i think is brilliant in the movie too um and there's the the love there's a love triangle quote unquote between Lil, Marnie and Mark and i say quote unquote love triangle because there's with Marnie's participation in this love triangle is questionable, (laughs) (laughs) right? Because, because as we're learning, like Mark is in love with Marnie, Marnie, Marnie as a character is solely driven by her desire to do what she's always been doing. And she even says like, well, if you love me, you should let me go. And, And, you know, and, we go into that scene with, or into that dialogue exchange about the animal that sh- that you that Mark has trapped, and he's like, "Yes, I've trapped you, and I'm gonna, I'm by God, Marnie, I'm gonna keep you." And that there there lies in my question that I've had about this film since I first saw it back in uh, high school, because it's a film that when I watched it in high school, I never watched it again because I was like, "Oh, this this just wasn't my cup of tea." And then re- watching behind the scenes footage, I was like, "Oh, this is definitely not my cup of tea." Now, as I've grown older, watching <laughs> this kind of uncomfortable art is a lot more important. And you know, I, my question is, is like, what, what, in your opinion, Jack? How does Marnie feel about Mark? Period. Regardless of what he ends up doing down the line, like, what is even her impression of her? Because to me, it seems like she doesn't hate mark but she just because her because her character is written that she does not trust men period she is genuinely fearful of this man who is you know portrayed and i think regardless of anybody's intent he is a f- flat out fucking kidnapper <laughs> like, like right no
1: exactly yeah. um excellent question i think on some level um i don't i, I don't even know if if Connery at that at that point uh, rutledge really just Loves her or is just so enthralled with an obsessive fascination of her, which again, motif alert. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I really find that that from Marnie's perspective, at the same time, it is almost uh, less the idea, and this is where I think the film brilliantly diverges from these tropes of like romantic idealized love and romance in a meet cute component, and really kind of just focuses instead on. Two individuals that got by manipulating people, I mean both kind of like gaslights everyone that they come into contact with, and they both seem simultaneously fascinated that the other is in some way – Defying the norms of gender expectation, right? Um, in right in the sense, I mean, that for Connery's side, absolutely, that is what he is fascinated by. I mean, he has been, of course, Zach reading sexual aberrations of the criminal female. Well, of um, course, the D- 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 brilliant D- book with no author in the study. J- Jack, uh, D-
0: Jack, weren't we all required <laughs> to read that book in school? <laughs>
1: it's just amazing. So yeah, so there's a real. It was the Bible fascin- and this book. <laughs> So, I, so for Connery's side, I truly think it's him, almost like discovering this new species of of, of female that is, because um, uh, you know, and going back to Bogdanovich, um, I, in his one of his assessments that I always found interesting was this idea that um, Connery is in some way stimulated and one could even say aroused sexually by her transgression of the law, by her transgression of what the expectations are for women to be. Um, um, what do you call it? like subservient and, and quiet and not taking these chances that she does. Right. So again, yeah, for me, it's much more of like a fascination between the two of here's what society has deemed gender roles are, or here's my expectation. And they're at once finding each other as people who are not fitting that mold.
0: Right. And I think that, but now my, my initial takeaway when I first saw the film was like, Oh, it's a kidnap situation in a blackmail situation to the taboo. But as I've watched it my my impression of it is is that like well obviously Marnie's feeling towards Mark it to my mind is regardless of any any uh deviated expectation she is she is fearful of being put in jail and so she yeah. is basically trapped. Um, exactly. Not unlike a pra- she's caught in her own little private trap to quote Norman Bates. And so within the regards of like mark's intentions or actual feelings there's a there's a part of the film that wants me to believe that Sean Connery is genuinely interested in figuring out Marnie and curing her there's another part of me that feels like it seems like Connery's just his possessiveness outrules any sympathy for him now and we're and we'll find that out as we get in get along here so they marry um And Lil is suspicious um, and uh, she and she's, you know, obviously got her own, you know, jealousy within that because she uh, is infatuated with Mark and Mark and Marnie go on the honeymoon cruise and Marnie explains to him that he is, she is sickened by physical intimacy by a man and this confuses Sean Connery, AKA James Bond, AKA, you know, a guy who it's funny. Tippi Hedren says in the featurette, and, and I think it's a situation where everybody kind of has this puzzled look is just like, this is not me and my belief on it, but like the, the viewpoint of the era was how are you going to refuse Sean Connery's advances? And obviously of the time, this would seem like strange casting to have Sean Connery play this role because of how uh, popular he was as Bond and the character that he portrayed Bond as. Um, And so in a sense, it is genius casting to have Sean Connery, who at the time was one of the most desirable men on the planet, to be this person who is being rejected. In terms of a casting decision, I think it is... It's not my favorite Connery performance. I'll get that out of the way right now. But it is one that I think no other filmmaker would have given him this kind of role.
1: I don't think... Oh, I agree. And the delicious irony of which is that Connery himself pursued the role in an effort to try to escape what he believed would be a typecasting of his character as portrayed through the James Bond series. So that yeah. did not work a, out.
0: A, a, a journey that he had to make multiple times <laughs> before <laughs> before he pulled out a knife when other people pulled out a gun. You know, the Chicago way. The Chicago um, way, Zach. Um, and so the... Mark Mark makes an agreement to respect her wishes and they'll sleep in separate rooms and whatever and he's he's basically implying that like you know I'll give you your space and your time and whatever. There's a montage of them basically interacting with each other where it's it, it, the, the the montage suggests that Marnie's more trying to figure out what her role in this, you know, uh freaking Stockholm syndrome scenario is going to be. Um but the other one is, you know, Mark in in, trying to fascinate her with his discussions on animal psychology. So once again, we're, (laughs) we're dealing with that animal thing here. And, um,
1: well, and it even plays, it almost plays creepily in those moments, almost as like uh, hitting all the notes, Uh, the expected notes of a traditional romantic comedy during the sequence. And that's where it kind of deviates a bit. That's a little um, unsettling, of course, to us within the modern context, because um, just as you pointed out that audiences of the time would find it utterly ridiculous that you could refuse Sean Connery. um, It was also kind of the expectation as well that, well, this type of frigidity is really just along the lines of how women um, were expected to play the game under the patriarchal system of uh, pretending not to own their own sexuality, and that it had to be teased out and conquered by the man, uh, right? So it's kind of like it, the, the audiences at that time are also likewise, I think, being lulled into the expectation that that you know, like, no, really, doesn't mean no here. Yeah. Um, so it, which is ex- exactly why it was treated very differently by the viewing audience then than by us now, not recognizing the absolute sheer terror of her trauma and um, everything that she's gone through.
0: And, and as we're getting into this next scene and even leading up to it, I will say that Sean Connery, if his desire was to shed the image of bond with this role, I think he definitely succeeded, but not where he thought he would, because not even close. Yeah. I find that just hilarious. Most terrifying Hitchcock villains in a movie period. He is a villain in this movie, regardless of whatever actions, Happen in the back half of this movie. He is a villain. And now, when you make the declaration that I've just made, it comes with the caveat that, like, this is how I'm seeing it from the modern lens. I'm like, I, I can't look away from the way he's playing it and not think, oh, this guy is terrible. Now, at the time, his actions are put into a middle neutral ground that I would imagine is part of the reason why the film didn't succeed is because even critics of the era were not sure what to make of Connery's performance um I think or audiences I would say audiences probably Mm. did not know what to make of Connery's performance because I think the performance is genius I just think that the the story that is being told and the 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 situation that is being handled doesn't allow Connery to have any definitive um, emotional dissection. We're discussing Marnie, not Mark, and so as a result, Mark's actions of the time are treated as uh, responsible. <laughs> and in yeah, in yes the modern sir. lens, we look at Connery as uh, as as the as this ultimate creepy. Like fucking dude that, you know, um, (laughs) now and, and we'll talk about why he becomes even creepier and why and why the back half of this movie struggles to deal with Mark is because and this is the scene that this is the scene of the film and of the book that has brought up a lot of discussion in terms of why this film didn't succeed. The scene goes as such that Marnie once again rejects his advances, and Mark scares Marnie into essentially a terror and a kind of um, catatonic motif, uh, or catatonic state. And in that catatonic state, he commits marital rape. And um, the, the, the response of that scene has... Triggered debate amongst film scholars, critics of the era and of today. I will go into the screenwriting element of this. Evan Hunter, who was uh, brought on for the project after Joseph Stefano had to drop out due to other commitments, um, had written this, written several drafts with this, and hit, he was unhappy with that scene in the original novel. And he did not want people to lose sympathy for Mark Rutland. And that's right, very much so. So very much he, so. he wrote, thought
1: audiences would be extremely uh, turned off, of course, as, as it should be.
0: Yeah. And Hitchcock, however, wanted to do the scene. And there's a quote here from Evans um, uh, discussing this is that Hitch held up his hands the way directors do when they're framing a shot. Palms out, fingers together, thumbs extended and touching to form a perfect square. Moving his hands towards my face, like a camera coming in for a close shot. He said, Evan, when he sticks it in her, I want that camera right on her face. Now, I want to point out that this this quote that is coming secondhand from Evan is I don't think it has any attribution to the production of this film um, and the, the stories that were discussed up at the top. I think what this is and I would I, I'd have to imagine I'm correct in this and in, in one of the few moments of um, certainty that I can give myself ever is that Hitchcock, as we have discussed all over this series, was always trying to push limits always trying to break boundaries. This was the next step for him. And regardless of how effective it is as a story, the the intent to do this falls in line with his desire to break into what he was seeing coming out of the new wave in Europe. He wanted to break a boundary. Mm. And I think as a result, it forced a divergence between an old school method of screenwriting and a new school method of storytelling. And as a result, the sequence as shot is obviously as tame as it can possibly be for the era. Um, It's, it's literally, and it actually does something that, you know, I'm sure Hitchcock probably wasn't keen on doing initially, which is as it's on his, her face, as Mark is raping her, the camera pans away.
1: Yeah, exactly. It transition. pulls out to a, a move that would be later on cribbed by Quentin for the ear-cutting scene in Reservoir Dogs yes, as well. Yes, exactly.
0: Which and you know, obviously we talk about Quentin cribbing those things, but like that that version of how you break away from violence is not even just Quentin's. This is actually something that happens throughout films. One of the best examples of it is in The Public Enemy when there um uh, Cagney shoots a guy, but the camera pans away and is focused solely on Uh, Cagney's partner when you hear a gunshot go off and a piano keys all hit in simultaneous fashion. So this is not, this is not a, um, a particularly uh, uh, in a a unique trait to only Hitchcock or even, you know, Tarantino homaging it or whatever you want. Oh, of of course not. Uh,
1: But, but it also sets the frame though. I think there's, there's, there's also, there's two ways there. It can also, there's a lot of times where the violence is done off screen In a sense to spare us the idea right that seems more of like a function of our cultural taboo the zeitgeist at the moment and how we reflect our own response to violence Um, but to have the technique where you are through basically the gaze in the lens of the camera implicit you're complicit rather um, with the scene and the actions that are going on and then um, having this amazing self awareness to then pull your gaze away and look at something else distastefully says so much about the self-awareness of what's happening in that moment yeah. and your own um, having to, to wrestle with what you're trying to portray and its acceptance with the audience.
0: Right. And so Hunter wrote a draft containing the scene and he wrote an additional substitute sequence where he had that sequence in white and then he had the, um, the, the rape sequence in yellow page and pleaded with Hitchcock to use the white page instead.
1: Hunter right. was fired
0: from the project in May of 1963 and his replacement, Jay Preston Allen late, She later said to Evan, when they met, you know, you just bothered, you just got bothered by that scene. That was his reason for making the movie. You just wrote your ticket back to New York and just has, uh, it, it basically P- press and Allen in her interviews on the featurette. She has later observed her own insensitivity at the time.
1: Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely.
0: And I, I think it's interesting because it's a female screenwriter coming out of Broadway with a play that she hadn't been able to get off the ground, and Hitchcock taps her to do this. And this is a, this is a building ground for Preston Allen to work in the industry as much as she did um, over the course of her career. Um, you know, she died in two thousand six. Amongst the things that she worked on um, and contributed to. Um, were films like she wrote the screenplay for funny lady. Um, she was, uh, she did under a pseudonym, the screenplay for Lord of the flies in 1990. Um, she, uh, worked on the screenplay for cabaret. Um, she, she had a career and she even did script doctoring for work for films like never cry wolf and copycat, which makes sense when you, (laughs) when you watch films like that and look at (laughs) something like Marnie. Um, and she also had stage plays, um, and worked on television as well. So there's a career that's born out of here for a for a female screenwriter. What's interesting is is that her decision to work within Hitchcock's desires for this film, and then her later having to reckon with it on her own terms. Um, I think that there is still evidence within her interviews that she doesn't um, fully understand what she did. <laughs>
1: I agree. Yeah. When you watch those, I think it's apparent Um, and and, and you watch them evolve over time. Right. Some of the earliest are just downright defensive and dismissive and gradually soften maybe a bit. But, yeah, I I fully agree with you. I don't think that she she ever came to terms fully and reconciled with with the weight of this scene, what it meant for culture, what it meant for the complexities, not only of this film, but how we are now discussing it now. Like, right. You know, all these years later, how it's going to be framed and viewed.
0: And she, but she did, she did make a pointed observation about Hitch's behavior on set towards Tippy and it was like you know an old man's tete a tete, which is you know that's what it is. Even though, it's much more than that. But that's a summation of what Hitchcock was, doing, throughout the sixties, um, in this period. And so like she, she, she was not unaware of, how strange this got later on down the line. Um, and so with that scene that happens the next morning, Mark is, um, uh, look, wakes up to find that Marnie is gone. He looks around the boat and finds that she has tried to drown herself in the pool. He pulls her out of the pool, um, uh, performs, uh, it's not CPR. It's, it, he's he's getting the water out of her, um, out of her right. lungs. She coughs and he, he's just like, why didn't you just, you know, jump overboard? And she said, the point was to kill myself, not to feed the damn sharks. Um and and that's an interesting line. Um, I don't know how much <laughs> dissection can be out of it, other than the fact that you know Marnie is again asserting a lot more of her control over the situation than Sean will allow, and it says a lot as we even go further because when she gets back to um when they get off the boat and get back to Rutland Estate, um she is this is where Marnie really starts to unravel. Um, mentally um, and you
1: know what and, and let me just make a comment there about the pool scene because what I thought was also interesting is there are all these great um, moments throughout the film earlier on where the two distinct personalities of your of your dual protagonist there um, all stem also uh, from how. They perceive nature and man's responsibility to either free it or subdue it. Um, if you notice in, in the way each deals with horses, for instance, right? Um, Marnie's love of horses, um, she doesn't saddle them in a certain way. She does not rein them in on a certain way. She, it is, it, it is considered very much more of like a, like a feminine idealism of how one is supposed to interact correctly with nature, not through dominance or through violence or through subduing. Whereas, um, you know, Sean Connery's viewpoint of horses is they are only good when you can bet on them and they've got a jockey on top and they've got a number on their side. Right? So you see this constant dichotomy early on with how each one views their idea of being subdued through nature and what dominance means within their system. And at this scene, She has a choice to either go into the wildness of the sea or within the man-made, you know, stylized and constricted swimming pool, right? Which is just, you know, taking like the ocean and bringing it on the boat. So in that scene, right after this violent act, the fact that she's in the pool, I think in some way I tend to to read a bit into her her subduing is in progress.
0: Yeah. And there's a, she's drowning. She's literally drowning. And, or, and, 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 you know, if, if an above-land term can be used, she's being suffocated. Right. And as we get back to the house, that, uh, confinement becomes even more apparent. Um, it, as shocking as the scene is with Mark raping her, I think what follows after the fact is even more disturbing. Or, and at the very least, challenging to the audience. Um, the, uh, Within this, Lil learns uh, that something's definitely not right with what's going on with Mark's marriage to Marnie. She overhears them talking about the money that Marnie has stolen and a payoff that has happened in order to keep people quiet by paying str- off. Um, and uh, Mark uh, is learns then from Lil that Marnie is not who she appears to be. Prior to this, Marnie makes a call in the... Um, and uh, after Mark has gone off for the day, Marnie makes a call to her mother and explains why she hasn't been around lately. And Lil says, she's got a mother in Baltimore. I eavesdrop through the door. And, um, and actually at one point, Sean, Conner- Sean Connery's being told why she should, why he should listen to her. And she's just like, you know, I can be a snoop or whatever, or, a, or, a uh, a,
1: uh, an investigator, an, an, I can be a- a,
0: an information gatherer or whatever. And like, I'm basically just like, just say spy, just say spy, (laughs) (laughs) just say spy. And then wink to the camera, please. Um, but, um, (laughs) she, it's because of this other thing I do. And so he then hires a private investigator to basically figure out what happened to Marnie. What, what happened? What, what, what is the, the trouble with Marnie as the behind the scenes featurette, uh, proclaims as his title. Um, and, They 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 go over basically Marnie's behavior and it all and it a lot of it leads into this nightmare sequence that Marnie has where she's crying out for Mama. And we start learning a lot more about where the issues stem, not necessarily what the issue is. And they go into discussions of psychology within that, that. I'm going to say this as, as a proponent of, at the very least, reasonable screenwriting, is that for all the good work that Jay Preston Allen does on this film, I feel like that if there's any scenes that you were going to draw from the Stefano script or treatment, it should have been these moments. Because I think Stefano, regardless of where his perception of analysis was in the 60s, is a lot more well equipped to discuss this and write it out, because I feel like it's a little off, and I don't know like what your thoughts were watching it, but it just feel it feels like their Press and Allen boils it down too simply.
1: <laughs> oh my God, yes, it, it's dime store psychology, right? It's yeah. something that you know among among the fact of also being an American aristocrat, a publisher, a amateur zoologist, a uh, collector of. Of um, <laughs> South American antiquities, um, Sean Connery is also somehow able to learn all of psychoanalysis within an afternoon of reading. And
0: if you're and if you're listening to all the things that you just listed as Mark Rutland, you could also claim that he's Batman at this point. You know how I know? <laughs> because his father's Alan Napier, who, Alan Napier, who played Alfred on the Batman. <laughs> that's, TV right, show. that's right. That's <laughs> right. I just made Sean Connery Batman, guys. You're welcome, I guess. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, no, you're right. And so like the dime store psychology which you know we talked about how in psycho the psychology is obviously not up to snuff but it is 10 times more thought out than
1: this <laughs> and oh my god yes right and and even and even um like um how should even almost affectionate in the way it's presented in psycho right like it, it is really it elicits a sympathy from the viewer where this one is just is is hilarious it it comes off terribly
0: yeah no exactly and so as a result of this they, they she's she's kind of brought into the role of housewife and hostess and lil at a party that they throw invites strut over um and strut recognizes marnie and mark basically is going to bri- uh ba- basically going to bribe strut to make this all go away um but as they As they confront each other about this, Marnie reveals that she has more robberies under her belt, and Mark um basically has a plan to reimburse the victims rather than um getting Marnie into trouble. And meanwhile, another plea by Marnie is made to hey, let me go.
1: (laughs) Right, right. And you know, this this that whole scene, too, by the way, of where Connery's just um so calmly and dismissively rationalizing how he can just gaslight the, the, the 25, 30 people that are involved that this never happened or that she's not even that woman is just this fascinating study in one charge you could make about this film is that within its context of the time period was like the last vestige of the idea of like the ultimate white male patriarchy um fantasy film right because that's just yeah. it's, oh it's just so outrageous they could be like we'll just make them all forget it if i explain it in this way and even if they don't buy it they'll have to get in line because that's how business works you know if, it's it's if, it's, if it's an outrageous
0: allusion, if, if there's an illusion that you can make to this kind of behavior to today the obvious example would be the way weinstein behaved and, exactly and that and that one in itself again this is a as we've talked about this film and how how many issues are written with it through story and production. The the illusions that you draw are the realization that the behavior has gone on longer than just, you know, the period between 1991 and 2000 and whatever. This is long. This is a, this is an institutionalized form of uh form of behavior that has obviously become its own reckoning in the last couple of years. Um, whether or not it'll change will depend on you. And anyway, we, um, <laughs> again, like it's, it's so weird because I don't feel intelligently equipped to discuss these things, but here we are because Marnie exists. Um, and so he's going to, you know, talk to Strutt while the hunt is going on. The hunt, the hunt. This is not the first time Hitchcock had done a hunt sequence. He obviously did one for mm-hmm. a film called a, a, a film called The Farmer's Wife, where it's a lot more adorable, we'll put it that way, it less traumatic. Um, you know, the farmer's wife is a romantic comedy. This one is making fun of romantic comedies, and uh, the 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 hunt sequence. It makes me want to bring up. I think the biggest hero of this film, beyond the visual, and it's Bernard Herrmann.
1: Bernard mm. Herrmann,
0: composer of high esteem and high regard in the world of cinema. Um, obviously an Academy Award winner for the score for The Devil and Daniel Webster, um, and wrote the scores for films like Psycho, North by Northwest, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and a film by a certain director who had a flair for the theatrical. (laughs) Uh, uh. (laughs) Stay tuned, guys. That's coming. Anyway, though, but Bernard Herrmann's career with Hitchcock, Ends here, and I think it peaks here. This score by Herman is my favorite Herman score. I do not like this movie that much, but I love this score. It's a great score. It is it's an
1: absolutely brilliant score.
0: Fucking brilliant. And it it's exemplified in The Hunt. The amount of tension that we feel in that sequence with his music. Well, one, from a modern technical point of view, distracts from the process shot of The Horses the other is that it brings a momentum and a panic to marnie that she hasn't had up to this point because other most of her moments of tension have been in encapsulated spaces or when she's trapped here she's out in the open and we have this scene so as they're going through the hunt she sees one of the people in the hunt wearing red, which of course this was going to happen. It's one of those, it's an on the nose thing that I was like, I, of course, of course <laughs> of she was going to see somebody in red there. But she, she, she bolts off on her horse. Lil chases after her. And in the process, um, after a wild jump that misses, Forio, the horse breaks its leg. And the, and the music crescendos in that moment. And, This horse is struggling on the ground, and Marnie is freaking the fuck out. She runs to a nearby house and asks the owner, "Get me a gun! Get me a gun so I can shoot him because he's he's in pain." Which you know, obviously for context, you know, like if a horse broke, it's like you fucking shoot, you know. Like I I don't, I'm not a vet, so I don't know how many techniques have been developed to cure horses. But uh, this is this is a thing you see in in pop culture all the time, and and of like folklore knowledge or whatever. But Bottom line is that she's she's in grief and she's begging for a gun. Lil arrives and um, is trying to calm Marnie down and she's begging with Marnie, hey, get, wait, let me do it or at least wait for one of the men. And in a scene that is very well executed on a, on a filmic level and on a music level, we see her get a pistol from the lady, the old lady that has the house, and we see the shot, focus on the pistol as Lil is pleading for her to wait for one of the men and her grip tightens and she shoots that horse dead. We don't see the look on Marnie's face when she does it. We don't see the horse being shot, obviously, because that, that would never happen ever in this (laughs) era. Um, but, um, and it's one of the most disturbing scenes in the movie, apart from the scene we had discussed prior.
1: That we discussed earlier, absolutely.
0: Yeah, but it's disturbing on a different level. But what's interesting is that as she, she grips the gun, as Lil says, wait for one of the men. I think that this is the most transgressive of the era Hitchcock gets. In this time period... The most transgressive he gets on a thematic level is this one particular shot, because this particular shot is something that you, you know, to to bring back Tarantino for a second, which I'll (laughs) often do. He (laughs) the, the, the culmination of a movie like Kill Bill stems along the lines of her getting revenge on a man that done her wrong and. I think part of it starts with something like Marnie where the thought of a man having to do this job for her pisses her off. Which... Right.
1: It is it is both a literal and metaphoric uh, trigger, right, yeah. in, in every sense of the word.
0: Exactly. And, it, you know, there's an argument of Hitchcock going like, well, I'm just going to do this on the nose. But it's like – but that imagery and that on-the-nose aspect of it is so informative and helpful – in the way you then later interpret it in other films down the line, not not solely through Hitchcock, but actually through all of cinema past 1964.
1: No, you know, and that, that's an interesting point. And I think I think Hitchcock also I'll proffer is specifically playing throughout the film with the dichotomy of Marnie both as hunter and the hunted. Right, um, she can both be pred- predatory and be be prey to someone else. And I think that's what the layer of complexity is consistently throughout. And so to have this idea of a woman who has agency and isn't, it is a predator from the beginning of the film, but then thrust into the, all the confines of the patriarchal system, having to now understand where her, her feminine and and gender roles place her and the limitations that are there and how a, a predator an apex predator can now become the prey when put under this this construct is so fascinating. And I will proffer hasn't been really touched on or explored in that same way uh, since Glazers Under the Skin, which features exactly the same type of dichotomy.
0: Yes, I'm glad you brought up Under the Skin because I feel that, I feel that movie filled with things like Marnie and other different dichotomies yes. of that psychological Absolutely. discussion. And again, as we were talking about the... Dullness of the psychological dialogue, the psychological imagery is much more telling and much more informative than the dialogue is. So in a sense, as much as Hitchcock, by my own hand, can be accused of not fully grasping the psychological concepts through his imagery, um, which obviously, you know, pertained by Jay Preston Allen's scene description and his outlining it is grasping something. I don't know what it is, but he's or like you can't you can't yeah. define it definitively, but he's grasping at it.
1: That can and, absolutely be asserted. I agree.
0: Yeah, and so Marnie is now she's unraveled. Like th- this is the unraveling. And as as she comes back to the house, Mart, Rutland and Strutt are having their discussion and you know, strut says the line like, Well just wait till you're victimized by Marnie <laughs> yes, and whatnot. Yes. And I'm like, uh oh, it's it's not an eye roll, but I'm just like, uh uh it's yeah. this it's interesting who this line was for at the time. <laughs> <And> <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, like it, it it's 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 definitely a time. Uh, it's a it's a it's a line that has not aged well, but it's interesting to still have it to have it there and to to see what then follows, which is Marnie, you know, holding on to the gun, still steals the keys to Rutland's safe and leaves to go back to his office to steal his money and leave and basically break herself of this. She goes to the office to open the safe and finds herself. Paused. She can't steal the money. She's she's struggling to steal the money. And therein lies a like a whole little tiny discussion about like why is she refusing to at this point? What what is preventing her from doing it when she's been able to do it so much other time? And I think part of it is because her experience with Mark has unraveled her mentally that even her safeguards that she had to put up with men until she stole the money are completely shut down.
1: Yeah. And
0: so in as it, it now, there's a way to read that from the from the context of the time, which is like, well, she fell in love with Mark. And I'm like, no, I don't think that's it. I think Mark has literally mentally
1: beaten her down. Oh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And again, I think that it's it's also probably not how even Hitchcock uh, was hoping that we'd view that. <laughs> um, I think that would fall to the latter. I think that yeah. what you're seeing partially there, too, is this... Um, this eternal narrative hope that um, Alan kind of like admits she built into it, which is, well, I'll redeem him from the marital rape by just making him charismatic and um, romantic in a way. So I think that even though that's how we view it for sure, that's, you know, that's, I think Hitchcock wanted it to be viewed within the context of its time in a certain way that just doesn't read out to us now.
0: I know at the very least Alan wants that to happen. And she I know does, and and unequivocally. And it's definitely what Hunter was trying to figure out how to do um, without while keeping the scene in. But obviously he couldn't
1: figure it out. And I I think think Hunter knew that it couldn't. I mean, I think he was very and this is why I always kind of like view this moment in cinematic history as like this Evan Hunter moment as just the real way in which we have to just solidly confronts these complexities when it comes to problematic films and problematic art made by problematic people right and how we try to assess it because it almost goes back to me in the in the the way that we discuss modern day let's say the founding father argument right with the idea of statues coming down and one of the great arguments and defenses misguided as it is historically is well that's just you know of course some of them owned slaves that was the way it was this is how the system was that was of their time and you cannot make that argument as long as contemporary abolitionists existed right yeah. no fuck that there were people in that time who dedicated their lives to the eradication of that evil. And I always think about Evan Hunter in that context as kind of like, no, you will not redeem this character once this line has been crossed, right? right. Um, no amount of saved cats are going to be able to redeem this character after that.
0: Oh, oh, that, the saving the cat. It's it's almost as if that theory is kind of nonsense. <laughs> right? Yeah. Shockingly. Well, we'll do that for another podcast called I Disse- I dissect screenwriting books. Um, and keep in mind, I'm not the greatest writer in the world, so what the fuck do I know? But anyway, the 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 bottom line is, you're right that there's like there is no redeeming mark, regardless of any attempts made. So what we're left with with the film is a portrayal of Mark that I think is pointed when we talk about the the reexamination of this film, and'll we'll, we'll, but to do that we have to talk about the end of the movie yes. which which I think of all the things that make me uncomfortable about this film, not even the rape scene and the gun scene um or uh, more uh, the rape scene makes me uncomfortable from a visual sense the ending the, the ending becomes even more of an issue to me on. Uh, you know, in terms of like a logic sense, <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> like the the worst spontaneous way to meet your your in laws in history, perhaps.
0: Yeah, it's and it's, but it's also like, and again, like you know, obviously, like more, more, when it comes to viewing, um, uncomfortable art and whatnot, m- morality, you know, is an easy card to play into why you view something. I try to be very objective about viewing it and trying to examine all the angles. with With Marnie's ending, I think that. For as admirable as it probably was at the time, it's it's an ending that I think, um, uh, it, well, one, it doesn't work to a certain extent because of the way it plays out. But also, there's, there's an element of the ending of this film that I think intertwines too much of the psychoanalytical attempts by Preston Allen and the visuals of Hitchcock that in a way that don't visually and thematically mesh well. But it's an interesting ending to say the least, and we'll talk about it because uh so Mark arrives and goes like, well you know we're she he they go into a into a uh, into a row about like well, why don't you just take the money? it's yours, it's yours, and he's playing the marital game of like what's mine is yours, and gets the gun away from her, and he says, We're taking you to see your mother and they they arrive in a thunderstorm <laughs> um and uh he she does not want to get out and talk to her mother, but they he Forces her into the house um, and they confront Bernice, who is, you know, uh, flabbergasted and, you know, how dare you, you know, bring my, how dare you bring my daughter here? How dare you question the way I brought her up? And how dare you try to bring up the past within the past of Bernice? It's revealed that Bernice was a prostitute and Marnie's, triggered uh triggering by the color red and thunderstorms it stems from a repressed memory of when she was a child and one of um one of the men that Bernice was servicing uh played by Bruce Dern in this movie um is um uh is res- is basically getting way too familiar with Marnie and trying to calm her during a thunderstorm and Bernice does not want this man touching her, her daughter and they get into a struggle and a fight. Bernice hits the man with, um, a, a fire poker fire. And, um, but they're still in the middle of the conflict. And then Marnie picks up the fire poker and beats the heck out of Bruce Stern's head, which first of all, that's, it sucks that Bruce Dern is a villain, because I don't want to see Bruce Dern get hit. I know, away.
1: right? It was, it, was, it was so jarring when you first saw him stagger out of I'm, the bedroom. I'm like, hey, hey, don't do that to Bruce Dern. But then you see
0: what <laughs> Bruce Dern's character is, and you're like, yes, beat up Bruce Dern. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> because
1: it, there's much more than just even the implication of perception. It yes. is fully on implied um, from both women's perspective that that is the intent of Bruce Dern to... Um, uh, possibly Rape Marnie at that point as well. Yes,
0: exactly. And so like, and again, and also a, a production thing on this is that um, in the in the behind the scenes for Family Plot, Bruce Dern revealed that this was done by second unit but that Hitchcock kind of ran between back and forth to supervise it and that's how he kind of got familiar with Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern ended up becoming a staple in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents series before then eventually being cast in Family Plot in a wonderful role that I love. Um, and um So as the memory is playing out, Mark is playing armchair psychologist.
1: (laughs) Are you you trying to say, Zach, that you find it somewhat improbable that what would take typically years of um, uh, aggressive psychotherapy uh, that Sean Connery can just produce in three minutes of confrontation?
0: Well, I mean, he did conquer the evil plan of Goldfinger pretty quickly (laughs) a couple years down the line. I I know that he can fly around in jetpacks. I know that he can drive an Aston Martin like nobody's business. He can um, walk so away from sense. the Holy yeah, Grail. Sure. He has s- these powers. It's a, it makes total sense to me that this super spy is also a super psychologist. Um, but <laughs> no, no, his his armchair, his armchair, his armchair ways of um, analyzing Marnie and basically giving her exposure therapy is <laughs> is incredibly misguided um, as a cinematic portrayal. I think it's fascinating to watch because visually that sequence is astounding for sure. But, but it, but again, like the content interferes with the visual and, but it the, the biggest attribute that this moment has is Tippy Hedren's performance. Absolutely. When we are cutting to her, she has regressed and it, and At the time, I imagine the critics were not happy with this scene because it seems overdone. It's not. It's a freakout that you see in actors or actresses, doesn't matter what gender, when they give a freakout that then gets them on an Oscar stage.
1: It's... Oh yeah, no, unequivocally, that's exactly right. Right, much, much in the same way that like the Shining like wins the Razzie Award one year and is now considered a cultural and classic masterpiece. Yeah, uh, yeah, th- that same performance right now would have garnered an, Ac- an Academy Award nomination without a doubt.
0: Hey, hey, speaking of directors who are a little bit abusive to their actresses, <laughs> <laughs> how many
1: how many takes are we going through here, Shelley?
0: We're gonna go through as many as I fucking want. <laughs> God,
1: I, God know, that, I know that
0: that. That's a good movie. There's stories behind that too. When I do Kubrick, we'll talk about it. How about that? Um well, I'll be there. Yeah, exactly. I'll have you on. But um so yeah, so then the ending is as such that then Bernice essentially explains her mothering and also explains, you know, like the origin of Marnie's father, which I don't know if we necessarily needed. But that, it that was an, an odd
1: moment, yeah.
0: Yeah, but it's an interesting dialogue scene. Like, it it, it comes primarily, I think, through um, Louise Latham's performance. I think she's the only thing that's selling it because mm. the dialogue doesn't really do anything to resolve any issues. But what it does is, that emotionally it allows Marnie a bridge, albeit the rickiest bridge on the planet. And then it ends with basically like the revelation that, like you know. Mark Mark says, you know, like, the, nobody's going to put you away, Marnie, not after what I have to tell them. And then yeah. they leave They leave the house. And Marnie says, I, I don't want to go to jail, Mark. I'd rather go home with you. Rather go
1: home with you.
0: And as they leave, there's a swelling of Bernard Herrmann's music with these children still kind of doing their, you know, nursery rhymes outside of the house. The sky does not look particularly bright. It's very in the middle, and we end the movie. And the ending of the movie that I refer to as being an issue is that line, which is, I don't want to go to jail, Mark. I'd rather go with you. The way you read it at the time is a romantic ending. The way we read it now is is revealing to the sense of, is this film ultimately about, how a woman like Marnie falls into an abusive relationship. And the answer is, I don't know. Right. Right. Yeah. It
1: almost seems downright fucking subversive in the way that we view it now. Again, uh, um, from the, from our own armchair quarterbacking, right. And how we've dealt with, um, the evolution of gender, uh, gender parity and the eradication slow. I shouldn't say eradication, my God, the attempt at the slow eradication of patriarchal structures. Yeah. And, you know, and, and her mom's whole commentary on, on her inception, right. Also just kind of, again, I'm not quite sure like you, how, how to best read that. It's the, it, it creates this on one level sympathy for painting a world that her mother lives in, in which uh, for men, Anything regarding um, sexuality regarding intimacy is still only viewed as a form of of commodity of transaction right of, of of what she was longing for versus what men demand, and then how women are forced to to work their way through that so on one level there 's that and it almost it bridges an almost odd sense I actually found that moment somewhat made me very sympathetic but then on then when you step back from it, you also kind of realize. Everything about that ending is still creating this this um, terrible idea that um, women need saving that only with the intrusion of connery with his with his maleness with his um, right with, with, with the idea and the expectation that women can only be saved or cured or fixed right only through this patriarchal fantasy that. The ultimate control has to be levied by men in, in this sense, right? Because think about, think about that. The ultimate captivity at the end, you're dead on right. That that prison that she's going back to is that ultimate male fantasy in that sense, because he controls her. It's not even on one level, right? How many levels of control does Connery exert upon her? It's socially, it's financially, um, it's psychologically at the end when he suddenly becomes a therapist. It's physically, it's sexually, right? So yeah. this is just the ultimate 60s patriarchal fantasy that's also placed within a time period where, you know, women are entering the workforce by the early to mid 1960s. They are grappling with these, with these ideas. It, that I- ideology is falling out of favor. It is being criticized in our cultural construct at the time. So yeah, it's just so odd and it can be read in so many different ways. And I feel that's at least the complexity of why I feel this film is absolutely worth watching, reviewing, talking about. And I'm yeah. so glad that that you brought me on to do so.
0: Yeah, no, it, it yeah, and I'm glad that you were here to talk about it because like you know, as as you stated, we are very we ourselves are very much armchairing in our positions much as Mark did. But unlike Mark, I think our perceptions of the world are much different. And uh and I think that our attempts to dissect it are not, to my mind, are not to exert any expertise or definitive authority on the subject. Not at all. What we are attempting to do is are we are two film fans trying to come to terms with a piece of art by a filmmaker who, regardless of his legacy, has this spot on his career behaviorally um, in terms of how he asserted obsessiveness and control over his actress and also the the particular subject he chose, which again brings us back to our initial episode we did together about Hitchcock delving into the CD and the depraved. But the catch is, is that Hitchcock wasn't intending it to be in line with those four films in the way that uh, it has ended up becoming over time. What's interesting is, is that the perceptions of this film have fallen in line with his thematic motifs accidentally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that it's very telling to what it's it's revealing to not just Hitchcock's obsession, but it's it's revealing to Hitchcock's um uh choice in material from day one. So Regardless of him making a movie like The Pressure Garden or The Mountain Eagle, which nobody has seen, so we can't even judge The Mountain Eagle. But when you start at The Lodge what started his third film, The Lodger, and then going onward, you know, his choice in what he prefers to talk about on screen is very clear. And then Marnie kind of culminates with it as like the most grounded, quote unquote, version of that. And I say grounded in the sense that there's no real fantastical set piece, there's no Cary Grant swooning Grace Kelly. There's no Jimmy Stewart solving a mystery in a fucking wheelchair. Um, So, you know, like this one is if despite it trying to be a painting or a storybook story, there's there's much more of an attempt to hit a hit a reality than in any other Hitchcock film. Does it succeed? You know, I think that's your judgment call on it. I don't think it fully does, but I think that there's enough in the film to examine and to study not just from Hitchcock's career, but also how we view films like this in a modern lens. Um, the res- reception to this film at the time was mixed. Uh, Very Eugene mixed. Ar- Eugene Archer the New York Times wrote, a, uh, wrote that at once a fascinating study of sexual relationship and the master's most disappointing film in years. Um, and his criticisms of it were an inexplicably amateurish script and that the casting of relative newcomers Hedron and Connery in roles that cry for the talents of Grace Kelly and Cary Grant. No, I don't want, I don't want any of them near that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Grace, actually, Grace <laughs> Kelly. I take that back. I would like to see what Grace Kelly would have done with this role. Uh, Cary Grant, as I've discussed, and as Ryan has discussed, if you put Cary Grant too far out of his box, it's very hard to look at him <laughs> uh, at times. I think that like the closest he gets a suspicion and that's an appropriate amount of creepy for him.
1: Yeah, uh, that, that's a good call on that. And well, and this also alludes to, again, I think what the general consensus of the public was with also, and, and I feel sad about this, also kind of like this demand for like, you know, no, Hitchcock, get back to what you do. Get back to the structuralism we're used to. Uh, we don't want to really watch you somewhat lose control or give um, overt um glorification on screen to your own obsessions right it was very i think that i think that's kind of like the unconscious disturbing thing about its critical reception was almost the sense that we can't we're we're finding it hard to even recognize hitchcock in his evolution and we find this disconcerting even less than a social commentary i think that much of this was just a failure to understand his need to try to break away from these artistic and structural forms that old Hollywood system had imposed on him, right? He was seeking that creative freedom that we brought up. And I mean, it's not even just about the the, the, the idea about the casting or things like that. I mean, Pauline Kale, if I recall, didn't she even come out and say he was like scraping the bottom of the barrel artistically? I believe um, so. And
0: that would, that would fall in line with Pauline Kale.
1: Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I don't, you know, and again, I, but, I, what, but, 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 a, but a critic who was, who was foundational in trying to look for experimentation and freedom and breaking mean she was the champion of the new uh the american new wave so um yeah just this fascinating moment of like the of this director in winter um trying to kind of you know break apart throwing in old flourishes for the production studio but at the same time i think you can just really see it with these films And and i will go back again the the films i tend to find most interesting i didn't say the best and i'm not saying the most critically acclaimed um or important But the films I find interesting are those of when Hitchcock becomes less Hitchcockian. And um, in that sense, I think that they're just so fascinating and vital to kind of watch what could have been. Right.
0: Yes, exactly. And I I, uh, there's another there's another review that I want to read real quick before we jump into the modern assessment of this. And I, I would love to have you shed a little light on it is. Edith Oliver of The New Yorker called the film an idiotic and trashy movie with two terrible performances in the leading roles and I had a quite a good time watching it. There's something bracing about Hitchcock at work even at his worst. And that's interesting how it wavers the way we ourselves wavered. With Now, our yeah. wavering was on different platforms, but we wavered nonetheless. As As of now... Marnie has a current rating of 83% in Rotten Tomatoes based on 40 reviews. Now, uh, the majority of which, you know, are a little bit more contemporary views. The reputation of this film has come to light more so post-Me Too, and specifically not only Hedren opening up on her experience and her conflicted feelings about Hitchcock, as stated in the quote, but also the way other modern viewers have attempted to... Um, analyze, dissect Marnie and even reclaim thematic. Yes, that's right. And you have um, you have a little bit more insight into this than I do. But I have done a little bit of research into it. Um, And like one of the one of my one of the interesting ones that I wrote that I read was um, reassigning power in Marnie uh, by Matt McKenzie on Pop Matters. And he breaks down where the reassignment of power in Marnie lies and also a way to read the film from a modern lens that doesn't dismiss it completely. Um, And then, but you, you were the first one to tell me about the modern reassessment of Marnie. And I'd like you to, you know, shed a little light that you've experienced with it.
1: Well, sure. And that piece that you're referencing actually is a marvelous piece and also a great example. Um, You're starting to see a modern reassessment also from prominent feminist critics about how we can reclaim that now think about this this kind of like follows along the same lines of it's almost even like we're in the business you and i and and people are contemporaries we're in the business of being forced to reconcile the idea of separating art from the artist in terms of its importance and how we view it within modern contextuality like that like that isn't even so i understand for the general public that can be the overarching question, right? That's the overarching um, dilemma, of more a moral dilemma for them. Am I even able to do that? I think in our business, we've kind of like gotten past that point. We, we understand that we need to in order to examine it. What I find um, much more intriguing, and this falls in line with kind of like a modern reassessment now, is if we move beyond that, what about when you have problematic filmmakers who – Produce non-problematic and sometimes progressive art versus uh, problematic artists um, who make seemingly benign art. In other words, like like which is actually more disturbing? Is it worse that you can have someone who may not have a public scandal that we know of, so they are not technically like you know canceled? Their egregiousness has nothing. They might be a totally great person. Um, But they have very problematic art. The art itself may be misogynistic, may be damaging, right? But even though that person didn't do anything versus um, a very problematic human being who's done very problematic things and yet their art can be progressive. And I think that's a far more interesting kind of nature. Like, we jump back to something like with Polanski, and this is where a lot of modern feminist um, uh, film critics are kind of jumping in like, no, we're going to take control again of the narrative of these films. It is absolutely right not to spend a fucking dime on anything Polanski is you know, making now or producing now. And there absolutely must be a reckoning in terms of his legacy with things that are done. No one's questioning that. But you're not going to take away the feminist impact of Rosemary's Baby, which is the ultimate fucking gaslighting movie, right? Is the ultimate movie about uh, the female experience under male patriarchy and how systemic it is. So that's the point. You can take a a director who is extraordinarily, and let's be very clear, terribly and extraordinarily problematic for Polanski the man – and yet, through the body of work, take films like The Tenant or Repulsion, can sometimes make goddamn feminist art, right? Yeah. And in this case, where I think it can be a little bit tricky in terms of Hitchcock is we know about the problematic components of Hitch the individual. How, um, we, how do we reconcile and look at – The message of the film, his art itself. What is Marnie actually trying to say? So where I I find a real fascination is that a lot of modern critics are reassessing this film under not maybe how Hitch intended the film to be read at the time, but more of the unconscious representation of what culturally was happening in this country what was happening with how we view gender and how we view patriarchy and the unconscious bits that seep in that allow a modern interpretist a modern critic to flip and and show an empowerment right going back to our tracy flick who is the real hero of this film and you nailed it at the beginning rutledge is the villain of this film wholeheartedly right And and the fact that we're able to take that is not only to me fascinating, it's not only to me one of the more exciting elements of modern deconstruction and, and criticism in general, but it also simultaneously makes the case that that is why you cannot resign to the dustbins of history, films or filmmakers or art in general that you may find problematic it needs to be reassessed it needs to be reevaluated, held up to the critical standards of our own time period of cultural reassessment and then have its reckoning publicly and that is what makes great critique that is why we have art in the first place
0: and and this is a conversation that we are having very much as a late in regards to um uh one david o has gone with the wind where there are articles written specifically um you know, like to to address the uh, the contextualization of Gone with the Wind and what it's been undergoing with regards to it being removed from HBO Max, only to be put back. Don't worry, guys, they didn't fucking take it away. Um, uh, yeah. but, but you had um, Vulture. There's a Vulture article by Angelica Jade Bastion. Um, yes, yes. On God with the Wind that gained a lot of re uh, reemergence in this discussion of gone with the wind and i'm bringing i'm only bringing up the gone with the wind conversation to point out like how a critic um like angelica really hits home the fact of like talking about d- dissecting and c- providing the context needed for what this film is how it's perceived and what to go what to do from there it's one person's opinion but it is also an important opinion to listen to and i think with the case of marnie the importance of Marnie being assessed the way it is today you know obviously it can be seen as taking control away from Hitchcock but to be honest this has nothing to do with you know uh, to me it never has anything to do with you know uh, uh, you know trying to beat a director down regardless of how we feel about him on a personal level like my personal level is like I, I generally appreciate for the majority of Hitchcock's filmography what he himself is saying about his work When it comes to, and I mean, even there are sections of the Truffaut interview with Marnie where he's talking about it, where I'm like, okay, I get your intent, and I will view the film that way. When it comes to any art, regardless if it's Psycho, regardless if it's Frenzy, or North by Northwest, or whatever the case may be, these directors are long gone. We are only left with their product, and... Ryan Frost of Real Nerds Podcast is uh, very astute when he always says that art is a subjective form, um, and or film is a subjective art form to a, to, a, to a high degree. And so as a result, it is our ability as filmmakers, film critics, film historians, um, amateur douchebags like me, <laughs> to basically, to basically look at the art the way we see it through our lens, because we are ultimately the recipients of the product. Um, that is a you know a, a culmination of the strange marriage between art and business. And so, how we frame the product in terms of the modern lens will ultimately decide not its fate of it existing. Again, nobody took Gone with the Wind away from you, you morons. Um, but in terms of what we deify in terms of what in terms of what we hold on pedestals because i think pedestals are much more dangerous than any content a film is going to have in terms mm. of where you place a pedestal will be your ultimate factor on like well what what is you know highly regarded as art and what is not you know we're constantly changing our minds on this constantly because our minds evolve and our society evolves and as we grow we it behooves us to take a look at films like marnie and assess like okay what is its value at And the value that I find in Marnie, not just as the piece that you pointed out to, which is, you know, this last this last strange and bizarre bastion of the patriarchy at its full dominance. But it also is a film that, interestingly, in its own way, has something to say about the power struggle between genders and within society at that matter um, in a way that. You know, Hitchcock may not even – certainly did not intend, but got at regardless. Sometimes you do something in your art that you were even weren't expecting, and it be, that's what it evolves into. Kind of like the way people take Star Wars super seriously. I don't think Lucas imagined <laughs> Star Wars being taken as seriously as it has become, but it did. Sometimes, right. or, or much, right, or like the, the,
1: the, the Herman Melville. Yeah. Was that whale supposed to represent um, white supremacy? Was it supposed to represent the unrelenting um, inevitability of capitalism? Or was it just simply the mammal that was existing in the water? And, no, and on some levels, you could way, argue it was like, sure. all of them. That's right.
0: And yeah, and so you're right. So then as a result, like, we are left with a piece of art like Marnie that, you know, we are we, we talked about, you know, we've talked about it, regardless of, like, how you feel once you've heard this episode or regardless how you felt about Hitchcock from the long run, you know, I think that looking at Marnie and its production is important in order to understand Hitchcock as a person, um, in by understanding one of his many different avenues and ventures into his psyche. It's also a film to celebrate Tippi Hedren's, uh, ability as a performer. Because I think that she has gotten historically a shaft when it comes to her acting ability. And I think through our discussion on The Birds with Matt McCord and my discussion with you on her performance in this, it's very clear that Tippi Hedren's career would have gone far had it not been for decisions made by Hitchcock to basically keep her under contract for two years and give her nothing to do and pass on projects for her. Uh, until her contract was eventually sold to Universal, and then Universal basically dumped her contract. Yeah, and that is that in itself is the one of the highest injustices from a uh, from a film business level that has ever happened. And um, you know my my feelings about Hitchcock and his behavior on this film are ones that I wrestle with daily. But they're also one of many avenues into his psyche that I can't ignore, and it, it, it makes my appreciation for different parts of Hitchcock work in a strange way. Because I think when you're working on a product like the Shamley Silhouette, where you have admiration for the artist, you you also have to reckon with, in your own way, the, uh, the their behavior on a personal level while still making this much more about the art that they're creating itself. And the answer that I have to it is that I don't have an answer right now. Um, I'm still learning. I'm still learning on how to process these old figures of Hollywood that have innumerable amounts of problems in their history and their past. Um, One of the subjects that I'll be discussing in the next series has a lot of issues. Um, And another one has a lot of issues. It's about two people, guys. It's a little tease for you but um the the to my mind the way we have to look at the the history of this business and specifically the films contained within it is by looking at the products themselves and what what legends and mythos we um portend and what else do we actually talk about that actually happened and i think that the fact that we talk about it is much more important than trying to give a definitive answer
1: um oh, i think it's un- unquestionably and this is the importance of what you're doing with the series which i have really grown to love and why i think it's important that you have this mindset of it i am like i am along the side here of of our beloved spike lee in that we you know we don't want birth of a nation thrown away it needs to be dusted off presented and reckoned with right and fucking talked about and um and having to hold up its own accord not just for the filmmaker but for our own tolerance of such art, and what it truly says about us, so yeah yeah, it, the and fact and that you 're having this discussion and that you 're going down these paths, right, because this isn't just this could easily have been a, a project that you embarked on, right, where it is you, in other words, a, a far less astute and and a person maybe with less character or less nuance, uh, less intelligence i'll argue might have almost made this an apologetic, and the fact that you 've taken this series with a, a filmmaker that we both so admire. I want to commend you on it. I've learned a lot from this series and I love your willingness to take on this ultimate dichotomy within some of these, um, some of our, the great legacy of some filmmakers that matter to us and matter to the legacy of film, film history itself and our perception of art. So uh, just, you know, kudos to you on that.
0: Well, oh, thank you. And I, I'll end the Marnie discussion with a note about something that has nothing to do with Hitchcock in my history with film uh, with golden age, Hollywood um, and dissecting it, and loving it, and appraising it, we are at a t- we are at a point in our society where the reckoning is coming even more to a head. And my my ultimate goal with this series, what and what it'll become after Hitch is done, is to not throw them under the bus, but to properly address their many different facets, um, whether or not I have an answer for it is 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 uh, is still up for grabs because it's going to be coming moment by moment over the course of this series and as we go further into it i may have more definitive answers about how i feel about subjects down the line one thing i will say is is that there there's an element of old hollywood that needs to be maintained and presented but it also needs to be able to explore all the avenues and not just the one that um, mainstream Hollywood has portended in Oscar montages, because <laughs> that I think is ten times more deceiving than any book written about Hitchcock or John Huston or Orson Welles or Raul Walsh or William Wyler or anybody that you have under the su- John Ford. John Ford, a, you know, a subject that you know portends a lot of debate. But yeah, I think just yeah. relegating it to the clips is not enough. It's not enough to just show a clip with Gone with the Wind and say it's important. It's important to talk about why Gone with the Wind is where it is. And also, where does it
1: go from here?
0: It doesn't go away, but it goes somewhere
1: else. And, and, and most importantly, like you just said, it is also vital that we can recognize we don't perhaps yet know what to do with it. And that is okay because we're confronting it
0: yeah we're we're we are in the learning stages we are not at the answer point yet only time will tell if the entire conversation we've just had is extremely problematic and terrible and we're all going to hell but you know i'd like to think that we tried as maturely as we can uh and at least i mean i could speak for i can speak for jack doing it beautifully (laughs) but but this is a subject that i was you know gearing up for in terms of wanting to discuss it because it does it does portend me it, it 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 makes me have to confront parts of hitchcock that i don't admire but that's important because um I, first of all you know there's a lot of angles to hitchcock and a lot of different ways to dissect him but i think that it was important to talk about through the lens of marnie hitchcock's dark side and specifically how we wrestle with it and the answer is everybody has their own way of doing it there's no you can't pigeonhole um a subject in history to just one thing. Um, except for Hitler. You can do
1: that easily. <laughs> That's pretty, it's pretty much established, right? We Hitler's can the those. only
0: one you can pigeonhole into one place in fucking history, <laughs> him and any other Nazi. Um, but um, so, Jack, thank you very much again for coming down here, uh, or not coming down here, calling me over the phone <laughs> and uh, t- dissecting Marnie with me for a good two and a half hours. This has been a joy and a thrill, um, and I'm, I'm very happy to have had you on this particular part of the journey.
1: Well, Zach, it is always an absolute pleasure to be on your show. Um, you know how much I love talking with you both both um, on tape as it were, and off yep. about the, these things. I know personally from our private discussions how you 've kind of wrestled internally with knowing how uh, the possible directions and possible consequences at exploring this component within your podcast about Hitchcock could could shape out could could take um what it would mean for you and the fact again that you went there full on I, i'm just i'm i'm really proud uh to be a part of a podcast that did that and I, I hope you continue on in your work with this it's been fascinating and i thank you for letting me be a part of it in well, some small way
0: thank you very much sir i i can't ask for a better note to go out on them. this is going to be the uh the if for the shamley silhouette this is going to be it for the shamley silhouette this week uh, you can find more episodes of the Shamley Silhouette at realnerdspodcast.com. Um, and we will be getting closer to the end with our uh, final episode being Adam Roach of The Secret History of Hollywood and an interview that I pre recorded in March. Uh, so look for that. Um, but until next time, good night.